This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday morning to you. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Becca doing what we can to give you the best insights, the information you need today. We're going to be talking about how to divorce-proof your marriage. Be talking with an actual divorce mediator or divorce attorney and uh, giving you the insights that uh, James has found from divorcing people. Basic, simple ideas for how to divorce-proof your marriage. Our thoughts and prayers go out with the Bush family. Apparently, uh, Barbara Bush is um, is ill, uh, has failing health, and apparently is not seeking any further treatment, is now just at home resting and the father's, family's gathering around. That's really always uh, an incredibly poignant moment when you're, you know, you're done and you're saying, okay. I'm not going to fight it? I'm not going to fight this anymore. Yeah. She's been in the hospital, came home. She's a very private woman, doesn't realize or doesn't see why anybody wants to fuss about this. Her husband, President uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, has been battling Parkinson's and is in a wheelchair. We hear about his physical uh, ailments, but uh, we didn't know Barbara was sick, apparently is failing in health and has decided she's just no longer going to go back to the hospital, just wants to ride this one out. So our prayers are with her and the Bush family. Um, man, it's just, it, honestly, you it, no matter what your politics, she's a great woman, and uh, this transcends all the things in, in the world political, which is maybe what this country needs, to be able to celebrate some... Um, some of the some of the great people that have made a big impact in our lives. Um, we'll be talking about that today. Also, get back to some more insights on how to uh, make sure you're taking the vacations you need. The No Vacation Nation uh, author uh, Shimmy Kang will be will be replaying some of our interviews with her as well. So much to cover there. If, if they could make the process of getting to the vacation yeah. better. Oh yeah, airports, driving. Uh-huh. It just seems like all of it's just a hassle. I've I've been uh, to uh, Utah, Wash, or, uh, Wyoming, and Nevada recently speaking, and I'm telling you, a, an hour and a half, two hour drive to Wyoming was the most beautiful, great experience I think I've had traveling in a long time. Versus uh, a one and a one hour flight to Vegas, nightmare. Ugh. So I've decided I'm going to just drive more. We also realized we haven't taken our kids on a car trip. You know why? Why? It's brutal. <laughs> but we're going to drive for 12 hours. No one says yay. My my it's wife bad. on our drive through Wyoming, my wife's like, "I don't know that I've ever seen this." Wyoming? And she's lived right next to Wyoming. I'm like, "You've never gone up to get fireworks?" <laughs> Cuz there's you can buy illegal fireworks in Wyoming. Not illegal anymore. Yeah, yeah. Are they not illegal? They're illegal in Utah. No. Oh, really? Yeah, we have, we're a free-for-all state again. Okay. We're, we're back also to... a high-fire danger state, but yeah. that's fine. Yeah, everyone in California is like, I wouldn't buy fireworks. <laughs> That'll just burn the whole town down. So um, maybe, it's, maybe you need to be thinking this year about a little uh, travel vacation. Get in your car. Take your kids to the Grand Canyon. Yellowstone. Yellowstone. I was talking to my church class yesterday about where they've all been, and my cute little church class went to Japan. Oh, wow. Uh, Mexico, Florida. This is all for spring break. Of course. And uh, someone went to Europe. Hmm. And then someone to, you know, 
Disneyland. Of course. But, uh, and I'm like, so anybody, you know, anybody go to Jackson Hole? Anybody go to Yellowstone Park? Nobody. No. Nobody gets in their car and drives to Yellowstone. Come on. I got stuck, uh, stuck on the, what was it, the ski tram uh, Jackson Hole. Oh, see? When I was a kid. That's that a was, good memory. It was fun. We hung out for a few hours and then came back down the mountain. Do you want to hear my Jackson Hole story? Go ahead. I swallowed a piece of ice and was choking on it, and then somehow the ice turned, and it had a hole in it, and I could breathe through the hole of ice. Did it whistle? Uh, no, but oh. I'm like, this is scary. My neck is freezing, and I can't breathe. <laughs> so I went and, uh, not to be graphic, somehow got it out of my system right. by hurling. But it's ice, though, right? Wouldn't it and just melt? went and sat down, and then I noticed nobody even noticed I did that. I could have died, uh-huh. and nobody would have known. How did he die? I don't know, but he had a lot of water in his mouth. Just Matt being dramatic again. Sheesh. Those were the days <laughs> when nobody knew you were even choking. That's why you've got to make the international sign, I'm choking, right. by putting your hands on your throat. True. Instead of just hitting everyone around you. Not to uh, mention it might melt the ice. That's right. Plus, it might just get the ice out of you. Oh, Heimlich maneuver. Not good. Unless you need it, of course. Let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? U.S. is preparing a new round of sanctions against Russia to be announced sometime today. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley said Sunday in an interview on CBS Face the Nation. Haley said the sanctions were part of a strong message the Trump administration had sent on the use of chemical weapons in Syria with Russia caught in the middle for propping up Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Okay, so these sanctions are for Syrian propping. Yes. Not for the poisoning event. No, that was before. Yeah. That was the other sanctions, and not for messing with the U.S. elections. How far can they go with these sanctions? They just keep, there's more and more and more yeah. sanctions. They, well, I think it's because they're sanctioning individuals on some of these. Some of them are sanctioning the whole country. Okay. So, sure. different kinds. So, more sanctions. Uh, as it says in an earlier interview with Fox News Sunday, Haley said U.S. relations with Russia had become very strained in recent days, but Russia's involvement with all the wrong actors in Syria, Iran, and Venezuela continued to be a problem. Venezuela? Yeah, they're back. That in yeah, there. throw that out there. Right now, they don't have a ver- very good friends, and right now, the friends they do have are causing them harm. I think they're feeling that, she said. So more uh, sanctions. It's when you've got your kid and they keep playing with the... The really harmful friends. Yeah. But you want them to play with the good friends, but the good friends keep sanctioning them. (laughs) So hard. Other news, deadly snow moving, uh, slow moving storms generated record or near record snowfall and low temperatures in the U.S. uh, Midwest and tornadoes further east Sunday, leaving airline travelers stranded thousands without power. Michigan. Snowfall expected to reach 18 inches in some areas. Wow. 300,000 homes and businesses without power because of an ice storm, most of them in the southeast of the state. Mm. Large areas of Detroit were without power. Customers were not expected to have it back on until uh, late last night. Not sure where it is. It says working to have 90% of outages restored by Tuesday. Really? Yeah. So, you know, just kind of sit tight Monday. You're fine. By the way, Becca was giving it a high five. She was excited for this. I just, I love hearing about the snow. Do you? Mm-hmm. It makes me feel really proud. Well, especially when you're here in Utah and your family are back in Minnesota. Right. Yep. And they're the ones that will be hit by this. And we got snow the other day and it was, you know, a really big deal. Yeah. And, and I mean, we get snow in June sometimes. Oh, yeah. This is... Green Bay got 23 inches of oh, snow. wow. Minnesota St. Paul area, uh, tw- 21 inches of snow. <laughs> See, the, but these places can handle snow. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It really isn't quite as big of a deal there because you've got the plows out. It's of those ice storms, too, that you have back there that we don't have here. 
To me, an ice storm would be the worst thing on Earth. Those make driving really difficult, yeah. And then that's where the power outages come, right? As it weighs down the power lines and trees yeah. and everything falls. Yeah. yeah. On Friday, the weather system produced 17 reports of tornadoes in Arkansas, Louisiana, Missouri, and Texas. Four people injured, 160 buildings damaged. Ooh, it's kind of crazy. Weather. So, yeah, weather. That's But again, it's it's the whole global warming thing. Yeah. I mean, that's this is the impact. What they, what the science? So, says. Now we just need a hundred more years of this to know that, for some to know that this is real. A right. Pennsylvania food manufacturer is recalling almost nine thousand pounds of ready-to-eat salad products following an E. coli outbreak that has spread to several states Uh-oh. and sickened dozens of people. Uh, the fresh food mart manufacturing, based in Freedom, PA, is uh, recalling the prepackaged products after learning last week of the contamination. Again, it's romaine lettuce. Uh, the Department of Agriculture put out an alert Saturday. Officials said the recall products have not been tied to any E. coli-related illnesses. The recalls, recall seems that the items were shipped to retailers in Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia and mm. had sell-by dates of April 13th to April 16th. Oh, boy. So today's their sell-by date expiration. So you can still eat it, but, you know. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration said Friday that the outbreak, which began in mid-March, may have been caused by bagged and pre-chopped romaine lettuce grown in the Yuma, Arizona region. Wow. Near the border to Southern California and distributed to retailers across the U.S. So you just check your bag. Yeah. says Yuma, but, I mean, then there's California, too. If so you're getting your um, lettuce yeah. from Yuma, Arizona for the next little while, you ought to be careful. Yeah. Or, or I mean, Matt, you are a doctor. Does this yeah. give us a free pass to not eat salad no, no, for the no, next no, no. few weeks? No, that's eat what your I'm salad. Eat your salad. He's the wrong kind this of doctor. This is romaine this, but... lettuce, and it's from Yuma, Arizona. You say he's the wrong kind of doctor? Yeah, he's the wrong kind I of doctor. I feel like we should all just play it safe and not eat salad. Yeah. So the the agency has not identified specific farms or companies that grew, supplied, or distributed the contaminated vegetables because I don't know if they know or maybe they're just keeping it quiet. Who knows? 35 people from 11 states have become sick. 22, including three people suffering from kidney failure, have been hospitalized, according to the CDC, but no one has died as of yet. But this is just – this was because of human waste. That's E. coli. Wow. Yeah. It's just, but the problem is lettuce has a shelf life that's rather short. Yeah. And this happened in mid-March. It came out. I was asking, you know, since I eat romaine lettuce daily. No, yeah. You're addicted. Should I stay in my habit so that we can have a nice story for the show if I do become contaminated? Or should I play it safe? You decided I should, you know, sacrifice for the show. Yeah, do it. If you, I mean, if you want to get, get ratings. if necessary. You got to E. coli up. Um, but nothing happened. Yeah, bummer. And now my wife was purchasing more lettuce over the weekend, and See? she's like, "Yeah, we'll yeah. just go ahead. We'll get you one way or another. It'll be fine." So, uh, just just word for the wise there. Be careful. We'll talk about an egg recall next hour. Uh, a Connecticut man is accused of robbing a bank and going to Taylor Swift's Rhode Island mansion to throw cash over the fence to impress her, according to police reports. <laughs> In the current case, police say that Bruce Rowley of Derby, Connecticut, is charged with robbing an, a bank on April 4th. Police say it seemed he wanted to propose to Swift, so he drove about 60 miles to her Rhode Island home and started throwing some of the roughly 1,600 he's charged with stealing over the fence. Rowley was pursued by police to Connecticut, a Rhode Island police, back to Connecticut where he was arrested. That's where he allegedly told the police about his plan. Really? To impress Taylor Swift with $1,600. Did it work? No. no. I mean, yeah, that didn't work. <laughs> There's got to be other ways. 
1,000. Maybe she's out of your league. Maybe. I mean, I don't want to make him feel bad. Maybe the, the fence was a clue. Well, that's one way to do it. There you go. Up next, we'll give you more ideas on how to impress Taylor Swift, plus how to divorce-proof your marriage with a real divorce attorney. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, love stronger right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. You know, love is a beautiful thing, but when things go sideways in the relationship, it can get ugly. According to the American Psychological Association, around 45% of first marriages end in divorce. And our next guest is uh, James Sexton. He's a divorce lawyer in New York City and the author of the book, If You're in My Office, It's Already Too Late. He's here today to help give us some ideas uh, that, that, you know, that would help us divorce-proof our marriage. James, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Talk about it. When and I've been a divorce mediator many moons ago, and I there is that look in their eye when they come in your office. It, it's uh, it's kind of it's almost too late. You know, I I, I, um, I knew about your background as a divorce mediator, and it always gratifies me to see you know one of us that gets over the fence and, <laughs> and, and, and leaves the profession. Right. Exactly. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it is. You know, by the time people are in my office, by the time they've taken the step where, where divorce is anything other than kind of a, a fleeting thought when their spouse does something boneheaded, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a far along place. And, right. and that was kind of the idea of the book, was to say that, you know, no single raindrop is responsible for the flood, but, you know, we can reverse engineer by looking at the ways that marriages commonly go wrong and, and try to figure out when the raindrop started and if there was something we can do to course correct. That's, it's, and to me, you bring a great... Great insight, I think, as as we talk about it, because simply that the, who would know better than a divorce attorney um, what what kind of are, are bringing people to this point? What what do you see are two or three of the things that are the most common um, uh, problems that that need to be fixed right up front? Sure. Well, I think there's the big things, and then there's the little things, and I think the little things obviously lead to the big things. So the big things obviously are infidelity is huge. That's probably the biggest one. Um, you know, financial impropriety is probably the second one in terms of, of of not sharing with your spouse what's going on with finances, screwing up the finances, getting the family into debt. You know, uh, fraud. You know, committing fraud essentially with money that was supposed to be joint money. And the third, you know, would be um, any kind of you know violence or any kind of temper issues or substance abuse issues that usually are tied to that. Hmm. But the small things that lead to those big things are the things I'm kind of the most interested in, because I, I, I really do believe people come to my office, they say, well, I want a divorce because he's sleeping with his secretary. And that's, you know, hey, that's a, a very legitimate reason to consider a divorce. Right. But why has that happened? Why has that disconnection happened? And that's a lot of those little things. And those little things are really as simple as just stopping doing those small gestures of kindness and love that we do early in a relationship and, and losing the plot of the story you were trying to write with your partner. And, and that's really something that, that happens with time. It's very natural. It's very understandable. But it is incredibly toxic in a long-term way to a relationship. And sometimes by the time we realize we've lost the plot, we've gone so far from where we were that, that, that finding our way home is really, really hard. And that's how people end up in my office. No, absolutely. I think that's so – it's so true. Is, do you see that – 
Um, can this be preempted uh, when it comes to doing or fixing this before people get married, or are they just too caught up in the hormones and the chemistry to really see it clearly? Well, I think, you know, I actually believe that people who are getting married should absolutely have conversations about divorce before they get married. I think when they first get engaged, because what do they have going for them at that moment? They have an abundance of optimism and affection. You know, really in that moment of, of, of uh, you know, engagement and when you're about to get married, in theory, you're supposed to be as excited about this relationship as you'll probably ever be. You know, you're not fully settled into it in the way that, you know, a comfortable pair of jeans after many years is going to feel. And that's what a long-term marriage, I guess, is supposed to feel like, is like something that just, you know, you get comfortable with over time. But that abundance of optimism that you have in those early days of a relationship or engagement, those can be leveraged. And I think if you talk at that point, about what are the things that might make us feel far apart from each other. What are we doing right? You know, when, when you make me happy, here are the things you do that make me happy. Here are the things I worry someday might cause problems between us. Here's where we might see things differently. And right now it's just a mild irritation, but maybe someday um, it'll change. And I think even having candid conversations about things like sex, you know, talking about, hey, this is what I like about it. This is what I like about the frequency of our sex life. These are the changes that I assume will happen with our sex life, and these are changes that I don't think would be okay in our sex life. And the more that we talk about, you know, the baseline, then the more we're going to understand when we're getting further from it. You know, we don't know who discovered water, but it wasn't a fish. <laughs> you know, when you're in something, you just don't see it clearly. And I think after a certain amount of time in marriage, people just don't see their marriage so clearly. So having a conversation about how we're going to have conversations in this marriage is a really, really smart move for, for people in early relationships to do. Yeah, it really is. It's the conflict, too, that because we each have such different conflict resolution patterns, we have different ways of approaching the conflict. Sure. And it's, sometimes with couples, um, you know, they think that having conflict is a failure. It's a sign that the relationship isn't a good thing. But the research seems to prove otherwise. Having conflict yeah. is a normal thing. Absolutely. And I, I think we're really unfair to marriages in this culture, because one of the things that, that we say, you know, both explicitly and also just in the way we react to conflict in a marriage, is if your marriage isn't perfect, it's, it's awful. You know, it's binary. It's like if your spouse doesn't do everything right in that marriage, then right. it's not a good marriage. And that's just so unfair. I mean, to have one person be the perfect parent, partner, financial partner, travel companion, bed companion, um, you know, housemate, in one person all the time. We, we create this pressure on people that, you know, you have to be my soulmate. And, and of course, in entertainment media, you know, everyone's perfect. Every love is perfect. Mm. Or it's, you know, a joke that it's so awful, you know, and that the wife can't stand the husband and the husband can't stand the wife. We really need to be honest with each other about the fact that it's okay. They're going to be, the goal in marriage is not, in my estimation, equality. The goal is equity. You know, hmm. equity and equality are different things. Equity means in the long term, did everyone have a fair allotment of things? Whereas equality is we have to be exactly the same to each other and accomplish the same things. There are times where your spouse is going to need more than you need. There's going to be times where you need more than your spouse needs. And that's the beauty of the dance of marriage if you're doing it the right way. Yeah, no, that's great insight. Again, we're speaking with James Sexton, who is a lawyer and um, an author of the book, If You're In My Office, It's Already Too Late. Uh, if you go to nycdivorces.com, you can find his website where he has all of the information 
information about his book and his practice. He's walking us through some ways that we could divorce-proof our marriage, make it a healthier um, uh, experience, I think, to the degree that we can divorce-proof something. It's uh, it's it's not life isn't easy, and there's always curveballs that are thrown to us. James, what do you think about technology? How do you see technology impacting um, the marriage uh, in the 21st century? You know, I, I think social media, unfortunately, and and I, I hate to be someone piling on Facebook, although it seems to be the popular thing to do right at the moment. Yeah. Um, I, I really do think that that we're doing ourselves a tremendous disservice by by you know. Facebook in particular, and I talk a lot in my book about how if we were going to create an infidelity-generating machine, it would basically look exactly like Facebook, <laughs> because it gives us this ability and encourages us, you know, even suggests to us that we connect with people from our past who we had romantic connections with. A- ask almost anybody, if they're being honest, when they first get Facebook, the first thing they do is log on and see what their ex-boyfriends and girlfriends are up to and see what they look like and see what's happening with them. But I, I have hundreds of divorces that I've handled that started with an affair that started with Facebook. And it gives people a way to communicate you know, clandestinely with each other and have plausible deniability about it. But, but even greater than that, is the, is the reality that what we're doing is presenting a curated version of our lives to people. You know, we're presenting this idealistic, you know, all the best pictures of us, all the best pictures of our marriage in the moments of our life, all the best meals that we've eaten. It's mm-hmm. all going up on social media, and it's resulting in people feeling very dissatisfied. There's tons of research on how people are feeling very dissatisfied with their lives because they're comparing it to the highlight reel of someone else's life. So instead of having really honest conversations with each other and with our community, with church, with friends, about what's really happening in the day-to-day lives of our, of our friends and, and having real marriage role models to compare our marriages to, we're comparing it to the highlight reel of someone else's marriage that they've curated themselves. And of course, it's going to leave people feeling very dissatisfied, and that opens up a lot of doors to things that lead to my office. Oh, so true. And, and, and two, we... You know, some people are really good curators and some aren't. Some are right. – um, but but it, it does see – and there is interesting data about how our, our self-esteem is impacted right. and especially because we're doing this privately and we might even be doing it when, you know, I, I could be, you know, connecting to my spouse, having a good conversation, watching a show together. But instead, the the technology tends to pull us apart and we're both a little depressed, both dejected and now we're surfing the web. Right. And, and you know, it, it's amazing because like many technologies, these have the potential to connect us in tremendous ways. I mean, there, there are incredible opportunities with the interconnectedness that's created by social media and the, the ability to have an audience of one's thoughts that, that exists with social media. We really could be using it as an opportunity to share openly with each other. I mean, I, I've said frequently that the people in my office very often have never had marriage role models. Their own parents' marriage didn't work out. You know, their own parents, uh, uh, you know, maybe didn't have the best marriages, or maybe they they did stay married, but white-knuckled it miserably, you know, which is not the goal. The goal of marriage is not to stay married. The goal of marriage is to stay happily married, if possible. So it really is a shame, because it would be a great way for people to share honestly and connect openly about the reality of their marriages and, and to learn, you know, what, what is a good marriage? How do I compare my marriage to a real other marriage? To What am I doing? What habits of mind are successfully married people doing? You know, I, I, I don't know what makes a good marriage, 
but I know what makes a bad marriage. You know, I, I can't tell you exactly what intelligence is, but I can spot stupid <laughs> a mile away. And, and so that's, I think, what we need. We need more opportunities to, to, to share with each other what, what a good marriage looks like, because otherwise we're just looking at this curated version that's just it's dishonest. Absolutely. What is your, I guess I, you, have, you have a suggestion called the Hit Send Now suggestion. Yeah, I, I, you know, this is a, a function of email. I, I was, um, you know, I, I'm in a, a line of work being a divorce lawyer that I very often have to give people bad news and, and uh, share with them, you know, things that, that are hard to share with them. And so one of the things I've found is that when I send someone an email, you know, give somebody a chance to, to reflect on it, digest it, and then call me back to discuss it. And I know that there's this sort of feeling, and I'm sure you can all relate to it, that when you send an email, because once you hit send, you can't unsend it. It's like yeah. you hit send now, and that thing goes out into the world, and you can't take it back. And so I was thinking about this in the context of relationships, and how do we, how do we talk to each other? How do we talk to our spouses better? And I found myself thinking that, you know, isn't it a great opportunity, email, for us to, to carefully write out our thoughts to our partner and to send it to them and to maybe even make the subject heading of the email hit send now or hitting send now and just make this, a, a, you know, have a conversation about how we're going to have conversations and, and just share with our partner these little things that happen that make us feel connected or make us feel disconnected because it, it gives us a roadmap to each other that changes from day to day and gives us the ability to really, like I said, stay connected. You know, no one ever means to end up in my office. We, we live in a culture now where you can pretend, you know, you meant to do all kinds of things, but no one can pretend they meant to get divorced. And so I, I think the best possible way to kind of keep your, your heart's GPS, you know, in the right place is to just stay connected. And so Hit Send Now is just a way of just sharing these little things with your partner, whether they're bad things, you know, something that they, they did that maybe, you know, sat wrong with you, or, or maybe even it's a good thing. You know, last night when you, you told me that, you know, you looked, I looked handsome in my suit, you know, I just want you to know that meant a lot to me. It's nice to me that, that I'm still attractive to you. Just share, you know, just have those conversations, but have them in a way that's non-confrontational, you know, a face-to-face conversation or phone conversation, you feel like you have to react right away. Whereas with an email, people have a chance to digest. And if there's a discussion about sending these kinds of emails, people can, can say, okay, I don't, I don't want you to respond right away. I want you to digest it. And then if we want to talk about it, we can when you're ready to talk about it. Yeah. Now, that's, that's huge, isn't it? And, again, that just creates, uh, as John Gottman talks about, those bids yeah. and turns. We keep bidding and showing affection for each other. And then the the key is, too, if you receive such an email or such a text, you've got to make sure you turn back and, and, and return the favor. Right. And that's the challenge. I mean, it's, 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 look, it's hard to know yourself. It's hard to know another person. You know, it's hard to stay connected to yourself and to your truth and to stay connected to another person's truth. So, so I, I really think that we make a mistake by thinking that we're just going to be naturally good at this somehow, and that if we lose our way, that, well, we've lost our way, and that's how it is. It's some fundamental incompatibility. I think, you know, Gottman's work, you know, a lot of the other work that's been done out there, even some of the stuff Esther Perel's been talking about recently, all really just talks about this human need for connection and, and this human desire. I am very much a romantic at the end of the day. I, despite facilitating the demise of thousands of marriages at this point, I, I really see how desperately people want to connect to each other and how important having love is to people. And, and I, I really, the, the, the whole intention of the book was just to try to share with people, this is so important. 
you know, we could do better. We're capable of doing better. And if someone married you, at some point they wanted to do better. And, and there's, I really believe there are ways to stay out of my office. James, what would you say is the one thing, if there's one thing that we could all do today that would give us the biggest shot of saving the marriage that's struggling um, or, or making better decisions in who we marry, what, what, what is the one thing we could all walk away with today? I would say be, um, be fearless. I mean, I would say just be fearless in your candor towards your partner. I, I, people don't hear what you don't say. And I, I really feel like we, um, we need to share what's really going on in our heads and in our hearts. And, and sometimes those two things are connected and sometimes they're disconnected. But, but if we're not honest with ourselves and then honest with our partners about what's going on in our heads and in our hearts, look, I, I get it. It's hard to get through the day, you know. And, and when you're married, you know, maybe you've got kids, you've got a job, you have all the stresses that come with those things. And it's so easy to just go, you know what, this, this little disconnection I feel from my spouse, it's not worth it, or this little annoyance I feel because of that thing they said last night about my sister, I, I'm just going to put it down and leave it. That stuff festers. And I really believe that the best thing you can do is just some radical candor with yourself about what you're feeling and then with your partner, because that, that's how we're going to keep that connection, and that's how we're going to keep out of my office. Good stuff. James J. Sexton is, a, is an attorney, a trial lawyer, um, and is helping us understand this. The name of the book is If You're in My Office, It's Already Too Late. You can go find that at the bookstore. You can also go to his website, New York City or nycdivorces.com, nycdivorces.com. Um, great insight into uh, how, to, how to make it so you don't need to see a divorce attorney. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer and love stronger. Up next, do a little Coach's Corner. Continue learning about how to uh, get the most out of your relationship by putting the most into it. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back. You know, I um, as we talk about relationships, it's it's interesting because there's it seems like to me many ways to to skin the cat if one is skinning cats, which is such a bad statement. Um, but one of the things I, I find helps a lot is is try to identify how you approach uh, life, how you approach relationships on the show. We've had so many different guests with. Uh, various tools and ideas and information. And you might even notice with yourself, sometimes you're like, yeah, well, that, that would be great. They just don't know me. They're not like me. They, I mean, they don't know how hard my partner is. Um, and so one of the things you may feel like is sometimes the advice doesn't necessarily work for you. And it might actually be more about how you approach uh, life it may be a little bit different. Some of us, I, I have a son that's a really talented musician, but he doesn't follow uh, any rules, um, at least consciously. He he didn't. He wasn't classically trained. He didn't sit down and learn to read the notes. He just plays by ear, and he can sit there and in one minute pretty much play any song, and he can do it on two or three uh, instruments. Just hear it and plays it. But then if you sat him down and tried to teach him, you know, with kind of a classical approach uh, and with lots of structure and with lots of theory and it would it would probably ruin it for him. He's a guy that needs to just kind of wing it and improv it and doesn't want to be told how to do it. Um, but he, you know, 
it's it's just different how he approaches it. One is through feeling and one is through kind of rules. Um, and, and you see it, too, just in the classical world. There's a right way to perform music and a wrong way versus kind of the jazz world where the whole idea is we're, we will feel our way through it. We are going to, you know, improv a bit. But even interestingly, in improv, there are rules. Um, a lot of those rules may not ever be stated. They just might be felt. But there's also timing at play. There's a little bit of chaos sometimes in it where in classical it might be a lot more controlled. Uh, in classical there might be a more con- preconceived process for how this needed to go. In improv, there, there's there's an emergent reality that takes place, um, some based more on moods and feelings. So think about your relationship. How do you try to, to get through it? Do you do it by feel? Do you do it by rules? And sometimes there might be a great way to, to mix both of them. But in the end, I believe there are some universal principles that apply to both that that I think would help both. One rule would simply be if you want to have more harmony in your relationship, you've got to make a safe space, a safe space where, you know, mistakes can be made and we'll be fine, where a safe way that we can talk about the mistakes that were made, um, a, a safe space where we can try to kind of go off script a little bit. We might want to, you know, premeditate some of that and talk about, hey, can we take a little bit of time and create a safe enough space where we can do some improv in the relationship? And so you might be struggling in your marriage because you're approaching it almost like a classical, very rule-oriented person compared to a, a partner that's that's used to winging it and doesn't want to be oppressed by all the rules. But we can still make the safe space for both of us, Right. Sometimes the safety means we need to know there are rules, and sometimes the safety comes by knowing that we also can safely improvise. So look at your relationship. Are you safe to improvise? Is it safe for both of you? Is it safe to fail? Is it safe to make a mistake? Or are we going to get a big lecture if something's gone wrong? Another thing we could be talking or doing is sharing and listening with some more courage, Sometimes it's scary to think that somebody's going to change the song. Um, and, you know, some people love to play in such a way that they change the song so much that it really doesn't work. And it might be better that you don't try to play with a group. Maybe you're just somebody that would rather just play solo. Um, but let's talk about it. When you keep changing and shifting and doing this and this and this in the relationship, it makes me think that you're not thinking about the relationship. It's more like you're just thinking about what you want to have happen. Um, so if you do want to play a really cool jazz song, you you do need to be thinking about the whole, right? Not just your individual rights and 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 realities. We want the whole sound to come out effective and good. We also need to know when it's time to just shut it down and let the other person go and let the other have their turn. Sometimes in our conversations, they're so one-sided that it really is just a solo. This isn't any kind of musical harmony or play that's going on. It's just solo and then the next solo and then the next solo and then the next solo when instead, wouldn't it be more powerful to have someone playing a solo while we are behind them, supporting them, playing or playing other harmonies that, that help or other sounds that help create beautiful harmony. Also, we need to adjust, don't you? At some point in any relationship, you got to be good at adjusting. The principle of 
take going from where you thought we were going and adapting to where we are, and then when it's your turn to lead, moving it to the next place. And when they move, we adjust. They might go louder, we might soften our tone. We soften our tone, they might go louder, but we stay in. We stay in the, in the music. We stay in the conversation. And by doing this, it really is this, this back and forth. And I think a lot of us just need to be confident enough to stay in instead of blowing it up and having somebody leave. Let's learn to sit in the chaos a little bit. Let's make it safe for each other. Let's adjust to each other. Let's offer our part, though, by the way. You have to offer your part of the song. It's not enough to just keep everything hidden. And know that tomorrow we do it again. <laughs> and tomorrow we do it again. Just like in music, um, I mean, it would be great if we could just hand out all the sheet music and everyone just followed the music, right? But the reality of life is it's much more dynamic than that. Many times it's more like jazz, where it has to be made up as we go. But it doesn't mean there aren't real principles at play. So we ought to identify what worked, take some time after we've had a discussion that we were able to effectively manage and and process through, and let's identify what specifically worked in that situation and see where that takes us. Wouldn't that be powerful? Anyway, it's never easy, but it's doable and it is learnable. You just have to want to do it and practice and practice and practice. And practice. An interesting thing. That's why they are teaching more and more improv in corporate America. They're teaching more, you know, flexibility and adaptability skills to people in the corporate world, which is very principle oriented. Um, lots of rules, lots of structure, lots of hierarchy, and yet we also want you to improvise. It might be a reason why so many people are disengaging from their workplace because it's just not flexible enough for them. It's too rigid. It, they feel trapped. And so uh, flexibility has got to become a part of all of our lives, all of our relationships. Anyway, just my idea. It's not, not perfect. It's just, it's just an opinion. We all can have one. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead as we do what we can to help you live longer and love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, folks. Remember, according to uh, the um, according to some reports, Americans are taking fewer vacation days than at any point in the past four decades. And 61 percent of Americans who do plan on taking their paid vacation say they're still going to be working during their vacation. So it's like we're not vacationing at all. And uh, we we had an interview with Shimmy Kang, who wrote the book No Vacation Nation. It's time to take a vacation. And uh, she gave us some great insights back when we interviewed her. I started the interview by asking or saying if someone doesn't take their vacation days, it still costs the company monetarily, right? It does. Yeah. Economically, it costs us, uh, like you just pointed out. And um, even practically, I was um, when I was researching the article, I spoke with um, an HR um, manager for a very large ID company. And um, she was actually saying that for their company, they're really enforcing vacation because when people don't take it, it actually, on a very practical level, affects their accounting and affects mm. their um, 
uh, you know, their end of year kind of projections and budgets and such. So I think that uh, when companies are uh, factoring in vacation and it's not being taken, um, there's a whole ripple effect, uh, mind, body, um, business, society. And, you know, we can also look at, um, you know, that overall productivity. It's interesting that one of the comments I got was, this isn't Europe, um, where people take all these paid vacation days. This is, this is a different um, country, of course. But when you look at the, um, the data, the top three nations that beat um, the United States in 2013 um, in their um, GDP per capita, um, all of them favored, had a uh, favored metric for uh, workplace productivity, and all of them um, had fairly strong vacation uh, policies, hmm. um, including um, anywhere from 28 to 38, 35 paid days off a year. So, so it certainly does have an economic impact um, on a nationwide scale. Wow! And and again, we don't we we even when we have it, even when it's at our disposal, we still don't go take it. Is some of this? It just seems like you have pressure, right? You have social pressure to to be delivering, you want to be on your game, you want to look good, you want to be there when the boss is there. Yes, yeah. And um, again, this is uh, nothing new. It's kind of been a, uh, you know, a, a trait of the workforce. Is, and a lot of the rhetoric, right, it's the, you know, um, the work harder, um, stay later mentality, which you know, has its purpose. So, sure. you know, I'm not advocating for let's all, you know, vacation. <laughs> vacation. It's really about balance. It's really about balance. Now, if you travel to countries like Japan um, and you see there late at night, you literally see um, businessmen, um, you know, staggering home, um, you know, exhausted or having drank too much. The 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 commitment to the um, the workplace um, is really taking its toll, and um, countries that want to get ahead are looking at that and making um, pretty profound decisions that may culturally not be the norm for them, and saying that um, we actually want our employees to go home before the boss, um, yeah. uh, and uh, because we're we're advocating for we want that creative talent. I think Arianna Huffington is a great example of that. You know, in the Huffington Post, she speaks very strongly about. Um, even breaks during the day, things like, you know, uh, having a nap or having um, there's beds in the Huffington Post and um, taking meditation time because in the end of the day, she's paying people for their brain talent. Um, so it's not just about being kind and gentle. It's actually a, a smart business decision. And it seems like the better you are at delivering some of those other things that you were saying in this new age, this new era where our mind might be the real great commodity. If I, if I'm, a, if I'm more creative and collaborative and I if I can communicate better, it seems like all of that gives me more freedom to feel confident taking a vacation. If I'm producing Absolutely. results, I should feel confident taking the break. Absolutely. And you know, really what we're talking about is workplace stress um, and, um, and, personal stress. And, you know, we use this term stress very loosely. Um, You know, I feel stressed today or my boss is stressing us out. But, um, you know, when we actually think about stress, stress releases stress, a stress response, um, which are hormones like adrenaline and cortisol, which um, wreak havoc on our bodies. Um, Adrenaline puts us into what we call the freeze, fight or flight mode. And if we think of the workplace, um, I really like to give this analogy. If you think of that term, freeze, fight, or flight, which comes from stress, and it can come from stress in the workplace or home, 
Well, freeze is procrastination, it's anxiety, it's um, um, having difficulty doing your task. Fight is irritability, it's tension, it's arguments. Uh, and flight is checking out. So if you're at work and you're surfing the net or um, kind of ending up on YouTube or daydreaming, all of these are part of our stress response. Yeah. And um, it's not how we want to be spending our productive work days. Um, so if we reduce the stress, we um, can get out of that mode that I call it, it's the lower part of our brain and move into um, a more conscious uh, way of interacting with our environment um, that is all about choices and um, and in appropriate interaction, not automatically freeze, fight, or flighting. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's really key. Is we, we have about a minute left, and uh, I'd love to know what are some things we should be focusing on to make sure we are doing when we do take the vacation. I guess a let's go take it. Make sure you're getting your time. What should we do to make sure the vacation is actually something that truly is recreates us? Yeah, so that term recreation comes from uh, recreate, and I think the biggest thing, um, Matt, is is the intention to uh, unwind and unplug. Um, so some people can say, I'm absolutely going to take my vacation. That's the first step, but if you're on vacation and working, um, then that that's not as great. So, um, And it, let's say you can't take a, a two-week vacation, but you decide you're going to take a three-day vacation, mm. but you commit to really unplugging and getting away. Um, the bottom line here is that commitment to get a break um, from the workplace, um, to really have our minds in a different place, um, whether it's our hobbies, whether it's gardening, spending time with our kids, working on our body or fitness or being in nature, but getting away from that workplace, that's what's rejuvenating. Um, so really planning and the intention and planning to do that um, is key. And then, of course, like anything, the more prepared you are, the more you kind of tie up loose ends. Um, if you're doing a longer vacation, talk to your colleagues, talk to your boss, um, and then have a plan for when you come back um, so that you're not overwhelmed. All of those things will certainly help. That, again, was Shimmy Kang, author of the book No Vacation Nation. Folks, we got to start taking vacations. You're going to – you're burning the candle at both ends. Can't do it. If you want to keep uh, keep the light on, you're going to have to keep putting oil in the lamp, aren't you? So let's all agree. This year, we're, we're taking some sort of vacation, and we've got to do it our way, right? We've got to do it based on what we can afford, what we need to do. But let's take some time off and uh, reinvest in ourselves. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Becca. Happy Tax Day. Happy Tax Day. Woohoo! Says nobody. Hey, uh, we paid our taxes. We like them so much we paid them twice. Oof. Yeah. I paid mine a couple months ago, but not twice. But luckily, they the government moves relatively quickly. So within the next six months, we'll get our half of our money back. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> Good times. And, and, and because the, uh, the staffing has been uh, stripped and because funding has been stripped, there's really a less chance for you to be audited. So, yeah. yay. 
Yeah. Well, and they probably wouldn't audit the guy that paid twice. That's an overachiever. That's a that's an over twice as patriotic it, as the rest of us. It, exactly. They're only going after the whales. Yeah, like the big, the big, orcas. the big monies, yeah. because they have to uh, be efficient with the staffing they have now. So little that's guys, right. eh, they don't you don't want to go get a lot just, of little money. You want to get one big. Just don't do financial. anything obvious, and you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the tax advice. Just here to help. Happy tax day to everybody. So uh, today's it. Get her done, or get an extension, whichever. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that either. Hey, uh, boy, oh boy, the investigation into President Trump's lawyer, uh, Cohen, has now, boy, brought to light another one of Cohen's clients who did not want his name out there. He had three this year, apparently. Apparently he had three. He may only have about 12. The president, a GOP, and then a GOP money raiser uh, Mm -hmm. who had to have a payoff for various reasons. Yeah. And then Mr. Sean Hannity from Radio Fame. Which, on TV. And it brought up some uh, questions because the other two clients, Cohen's known for payoffs, for making things go away. Yeah. So what did he do for Sean Hannity? Hannity made a statement that he's never paid off a third party. This has never been That's what he said after. But at first everyone's like, what? What? but the interesting thing is Hannity was very against the uh, the uh, yeah. what the Justice Department and the the, what, the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office Extending. going in and searching the office of Cohen. He's like, this yeah. is you can't do this. He was just really kind of shaking his fist and never went, really went on explained and on. that. Didn't at all that explain. he was in any way involved with Cohen. Last night, Alan Dershowitz. Now he's a law professor. He's a Harvard professor of law. Yeah, he, he's, he's he's the guy. A lot. People look at him as a legal expert, yeah. and they bring him on. He was on Sean Hannity's show last night as a legal expert. Yeah. Hannity asks him, "Should the Russia investigation just be disbanded at this point? It's really flawed. All these different things." And then Dershowitz goes, "Okay, well, first off, Han- Sean, you should have disclosed that you did he, <laughs> had did this he relationship that? with Cohen. Wow, so completely off topic. He just went after yeah. him, and then Sean was like, "Well, hey, I only had a. Uh, it was just you know a limited relationship. I, I hold on. Your name came up in court. It was some real estate situations. It was yeah. you know those though he yeah. and and Dershowitz is like I understand." But seeing as you're on TV talking about this, you should have disclosed that you have a relationship with the guy everyone's talking yeah. about. Yeah. And when his office was raided, you should have probably said, just so, so everybody knows, he's a really, really good friend of mine, has been for years, and I like to ask legal questions to him. Right. And he, and he may perceive me as a client. And if it was a legal if it was just real estate, then say that. Yeah, yeah, not a big deal. But when you just kind of keep quiet and let it float under the radar until it's mentioned in court, it looks oh. really bad. You know, it would be horrible to be, you know, Sean Hannity if it was as, as innocent as he says it is. And then the next thing you know, you're being brought up Uh-oh. in the the craziest case. You yeah, know, you don't want to be had. involved in that case. Uh, all right, well, let's get to the rest of the headlines. Anything else going on? Uh, along that same route there, shortly after it was revealed Monday that President Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, counts Sean Hannity as a client, the Fox News host and colleague Juan Williams asked why his connection was never disclosed on his show. Why, when Sean was on air strongly an advocate of President Trump, was he not saying, hey, I've got a relationship with it, with the lawyer, Williams said on the TV show The Five. He goes, I think that's a question. On Twitter, Hannity and Cohen have never, uh, Hannity said they, they have, his, Cohen has never represented me in any matter. I have never retained him, received any invoice, or paid any legal fees. 
Hannity added that the pair did have a brief discussion about legal questions, and he assumed those conversations were confidential, but to be absolutely clear, they've never involved any matter between me and a third party. Which would be, you know, there's no payoffs. So he felt like he didn't need to say that because they're not close? I I guess he felt like there was no relationship, but Cohen felt it was important enough not to disclose, and we're going to... Have my lawyer submit letters to the judge. Hey, let's not do this. This person's a public figure. Let's, you know. Oh, but, so. but Sean did say, but but I did. Assume, this is something that was interesting. He said, but I did assume that I had client attorney privilege. Yeah. Of secrecy of what was said. And he said his privacy was violated yesterday well, in court. Except the problem is, if you're not a client, yeah. you can't have client attorney Or privilege. if the guy you're dealing with isn't actually a lawyer. I mean, he may have a degree, but he's not doing lawyer work. Right. He's fixing problems. He's a fixer. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... He's like a handyman. You can't call attorney-client privilege when you're not being an attorney. Right. I guess. Interesting stuff. Just so whatever. So President Trump is reportedly looking to avoid levying new economic sanctions on Russia in response to a suspected chemical attack by Syria this month. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, announced Sunday the sanctions would be forthcoming to send a strong message denouncing Russia's backing of the Syrian government. She said that on national television. But the Washington Post reported Monday that Trump was upset that the sanctions were already in motion because he was, quote, not yet comfortable in executing them. The so pres- she's she's putting her neck out on the line here, saying, "Yeah, we're coming down tough on Russia." Right, and he says, "Whoa!" and he backed it down. And we launched eighty-eight of one hundred and five missiles at Syria over this issue. It was that serious that we did military yeah. action. But we're not sure if we want to do sanctions. Oh, and, uh, wow. The president reportedly wants to be wants to instead wait to see if Russia further provokes a response from the U.S. before deciding on sanctions. So. Wait for them to do something else? Yeah, I guess. If they're involved, they're involved, I guess. I don't know. The president reportedly had not approved the sanctions when Haley announced them. on Mon- And on Monday, the White House publicly backpedaled Haley's statement. Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said the administration is merely considering additional sanctions and that a decision will be made in the future. Why are they so afraid of Russia? It's another situation where Putin comes up. And then eh, we're not going to do something. We'll kind of soft pedal something. Don't and, rock and it. And you may have legit reasons. It just seems like every time those two subjects come up, Trump, Putin, yeah. we're going to be kind of soft instead of going after him for doing something that you assume they did. That was part of the missile launch. So, oh, well. Right. John McCain, stable condition uh, after undergoing surgery on Sunday to treat an intestinal infection, his office said. McCain, who was diagnosed with brain cancer last summer, has not returned to Capitol Hill since December. He has remained at home in Arizona while undergoing cancer treatment. He has remained engaged on his work as chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee and has enjoyed frequent visits from family, friends, staff, and Senate colleagues. He's got to be one of the toughest men around. He has a brain tumor, right? right? And just had to go through surgery and is in stable condition. Right. So they said the uh, issue was they found the tumor last year while they're going after a blood clot that had formed during surgery and found the tumor and the intestinal thing is to get another issue that's come yeah. up. So, yeah. Well, hang on. He's continuing on. He's back. This uh, I found yesterday. I thought it might have been an interesting uh, development when it comes to the important issue of pizza delivery. Yes. I mean, I think all of us at some point or another – this need is a pizza. Critical. No, for sure. So Domino's, which has been bringing pizzas to doorsteps for more than half a century, says the PR release, will now deliver to the great outdoors. 
The pizza chain said Monday that its drivers can meet customers at U.S. beaches, parks, and landmarks to hand over pizza, cheesy bread, or other food on its menu. Wow. The locations show up in the company's app or website at Domino, uh, called Domino's Hotspots. Franchises choose the hot spots, including local dog parks and airports. Drivers will pull up to the curb to meet the customer, Domino said, and people can tell the app uh, what they're wearing so it's easier to spot them. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you could be in any state park. You could have a pizza delivered to Lincoln Memorial. Uh, the public library near my home, you can have a pizza delivered there. Excellent. Uh, That's there's really a park. Smart. I'm just looking here on on the Domino's Pizza app. Yeah, yeah. To see, you know, locally right yeah. around us. I think that's neat. How you that. have all of the pizza apps. That's I, really great. I actually, am, I think I'm logged in on every one of the pizza main major pizza websites because you wow. get deals wow. and stuff. So yeah, do you? BYU Broadcasting. Yeah. Is you can just, but I mean, you know, it's a building. Yeah. They're, they're talking more like you're on the beach and not trying to drop any hints, but if anyone is listening, you yeah, can so now send pizzas send to pizza BYU to Broadcasting. The Matt Show breakfast pizza. Care of Matt Townsend, he'll cover it. Don't worry. We're wearing it. headphones. Um, you can. Oh yeah. There's the basketball stadium next door, both north and south entrances. Oh wow! So if you're at the game, you can order a pizza outside instead of maybe concessions. Not saying that. Not saying you that you do that because that wouldn't be right. But if you look at the map here. Those are all the locations around us. There's wow. probably like 15, 20 maybe. Well, I think that's great. So you can go camping with your family but still have the pizza delivered to the ranger station. Right. That's wonderful. Or, now you don't have to. The first thing I pictured when you said that they delivered to the great outdoors was like the Amazon drone thing that's coming oh, yeah, out. Yeah. Just picture drones like delivering a pizza oh, to a wow. tent in the middle of a that cliff. Could, that could be the extent of this when it, when it rolls all the way out. Boy, that'll you be the You see day. yourself on a family trip to Yellowstone National Park. You're at Old Faithful. Have a pizza delivered. Have a pizza right Why there. Not? That's Why what not? I call living off the land. Well, do you remember when we didn't have pizza at all those places? Instead, you were just looking at the Lincoln Memorial. Now, now you got to have your pizza delivered there wow what's happening to this world well i know what's happening it's our health it's going down uh it's going down the tube uh, up next we're going to be talking about why the south of the united states is the least healthy region in the united states interesting research about uh why why they're struggling down there so much this is the matt townsend show doing what we can to help you live longer and get your pizza delivered anywhere in the world Welcome back, folks. What does Massachusetts, Hawaii, Vermont, Utah, and Connecticut all have in common? Well, in 2017, they were all rated the healthiest states in the union. On the other hand, West Virginia, Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi are all in the south and are at the bottom of the list of healthiest states in the union. Why is this the case? Well, here to answer the question, that question is uh, Dr. Jay Maddock. He's the dean of the School of Public Health at Texas A&M University. He previously served as the director of the University of Hawaii Public Health Program for eight years. Uh, Dr. Jay Maddock, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning, Matt. Thank you. You know, this really, it's always more complicated than it seems. I, whenever I think of the South, 
I think they just have great food. That's why they're all why they're less healthy states. But you've you've been able to identify there's a variety of reasons that lead to their lower health status. Talk to us about what are the, some of the reasons about why the southern states are are so unhealthy. Sure, you know I think it's it's very interesting as we look uh, across the country because. Uh, county to county, we see big differences in health, and it's pretty dramatic. It's actually about um, 20 year difference in lifespan from the shortest uh, lifespan in the county to the longest. And wow. so, as we try to figure out, you know, you know what's causing that, um, we see a lot of differences in um, in health behaviors. And so, you know, we look and say, what kills Americans? It tends to be smoking physical inactivity, and poor diet. You know, about two-thirds of premature deaths are related to those. And um, certainly the smoking rate is higher throughout the South, with uh, West Virginia and Kentucky being two of the highest. Um, we also see higher rates of obesity and diabetes uh, in these states. And, and so part of it is trying to figure out what, why. Why would we see higher obesity and diabetes and smoking rates in, in those states? Mm. And it's, um, it's, it's, that is amazing, though. 20 years difference. Some counties in the South versus count, some of those other states we, we listed, a 20-year difference in life expectancy. I mean, honestly, this is, this is, this is a big deal. We've got to figure this out. It's incredible. And, you know, living in, in Hawaii um, and in Massachusetts growing up, um, you know, it, it, coming to Texas and saying, oh, there's, you know, there's a five or six year lifespan between Texas and Hawaii. Um, you know, what, what could be causing that? And it's, you know, something that was what really got me into this, this research as I had moved from Hawaii to Texas about three years ago. Yeah. Talk about, I mean, so some of this has got to be access to care, right? It's got to be, are, are these states paying less for health care and, and, and making it less accessible? What's going on as far as just the institutions of health care there? Yeah, you know, there's major shortages in primary care physicians in the South. If you look at kind of a, a map of the U.S. and say, where are primary health care physicians? They, they tend to be really, really clustered in um, the northeastern part of the United States. And so um, places like Massachusetts, you'll see more than 200 um, primary care physicians per 100,000 people. And in places like Mississippi, there's less than 100, um, you know, so it's about half. And so you got longer waiting times. And then in in a lot of these states, you're dealing with rural health, right? And so folks that live uh, a long way away from a city, and so there might be an hour or more travel just to see a physician. We have counties here in Texas where there's not one physician living in the entire county. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. It is. And I guess is that... um, they they just are choosing not to live there or and they're not being i guess incentivized or drawn to live there yeah you know i think you look at you look at salaries for physicians and they tend to be very um different across the nation and so when somebody comes to say texas and they can work in houston in the texas medical center or they can work in a very small community in west texas the amount of, of income and lifestyle is going to be so different um depending on those two choices now, it's an interesting thing because it doesn't – I mean, money is one thing, but Hawaii, for example, is rated as one of the healthiest in the nation. Um, but I'm not are – they, are they a rich state? It seems like they've got, they've got their own issues of, uh, you know, accessibility and getting people off the – you know, out of, out of their – where they live and getting them to a healthcare facility. 
Yeah, you know, it's, I chaired the Board of Health in the state of Hawaii, and especially on the neighbor islands, uh, access to care was, was uh, quite dramatic. We had to actually airlift folks in, um, you know, that had medical emergencies to Oahu yeah. uh, for care. But what you saw in Hawaii was actually much more on the primary prevention side. And so, um, you know, a state that really uh, took smoking seriously. And so back in 2006, um, smoking was banned in all indoor areas in um, businesses and workplaces in, in Hawaii. And then just uh, two years ago, they increased the smoking age to 21. And so a state that's really said, you know, we're not going to pay um, all the costs related to smoking. We're going to be very progressive on the, um, the policy angle. Hmm. Now, so being on these public health boards, what percentage of, of impact do they really have? Are they a big player in the health of their communities or are they just more, you know, appointed positions from some governor? Yeah, you know, the, the public health boards have kind of, it depends on mixed uh, kind of effects and how um, how open you have a relationship with the legislature. Actually, where we saw a lot more effectiveness was in our coalition work. So the group we had called the Coalition for Tobacco-Free Hawaii, which was a voluntary group, um, but made up of people like the American Cancer Society, American Heart, the university, um, really came together as a voice for um, you know smart public health policies. And in Hawaii, we made a lot of inroads um, with that in terms of really influencing and educating uh, elected officials. Hmm. It's uh, it's it is interesting to to look at also uh, when we talk about the South. It seems like North Carolina they they have some of the best medical facilities in the country uh with duke and north carolina and and so um is this about having having great you know educational opportunities in the healthcare field does that help because they don't seem to be the states listed in the south with the problem yeah you know and north carolina is an interesting one because it really is kind of uh on the line between the south and um the mid atlantic yeah. and so Certainly, they have the great health care. Um, there are major health disparities between um, you know, parts of the east and then parts of Appalachia, which is in the western part of the state, where you see um, you know, the opioid epidemic being really bad. Um, and so North Carolina kind of has a mix depending on part of the state that you're in. Hmm. What, what should we do about this, Jay? I mean, we hear uh, it's almost every year on the show we'll, we'll do another – they'll do a – someone will do a census about the healthiest states and the southern. Those, those five or so that are always listed in the south, they don't seem to be changing much. Um, and so is there anything that can be done, really? Yeah, you know, I think there is. I mean, so what we did from geez, back, starting back in 2000 through 2015 in Hawaii – was we created a concentrated effort called the Healthy Hawaii Initiative, which was a partnership between the State Department of Health, the University of Hawaii, and the Department of Education. And we really said, let's take a comprehensive look at our state and what's affecting uh, health outcomes, and, and the major being the tobacco use, the physical activity, and the nutrition. And let's look at all the policies and environments, and then also public education that we can work on. And so Hawaii, when I got there, was ranked about ninth. And then up until this past year, when Massachusetts passed us for five years in a row, Hawaii was the healthiest state in the nation. So I think there there are ways, mm. but it takes kind of a concentrated effort um, within the states to do it. Is it? Um, do you normally see that it's the people that push it to happen, or is it the government that pushes it down? You know, it happens both ways. And so uh, certainly when the, when the people get together and work on it, that, that can be the strongest. But we saw um, places, you know, a lot of, and that's one of the reasons these rankings are actually 
fairly important. So they did city healthy city rankings, and a few years back, uh, Philadelphia was rated as the least healthy city in America. Hmm. And the mayor got upset, and so he said, we're not going to do this anymore. And so that really made him uh, concentrate and focus on it, and Philadelphia is in the bottom of no one's rankings anymore. So they really made you know, a nice difference in that city, and it, but it took the leadership um, to really make it happen. Boy, that's great. Uh, again, we're speaking with Dr. Jay Maddock. He is the dean of the School of Public Health at Texas A&M University. He has served as the director of University of Hawaii's public health program for eight years and is internationally recognized for his research in social ecological approaches to increasing physical activity. Uh, Jay, when I look at it too, um, I mean, it's it's one thing to, it's one thing, I guess, to like educate everybody on this, but you also have to make things accessible. You've got to have places for people to walk, activities for people to do. I mean, it seems like it gets fairly expensive. You know, it doesn't have to be expensive. And so um, one of the big policies that we worked on in Hawaii was called Complete Streets. And what Complete Streets is, is just anytime you build a new road or you renovate a road, you consider all um, modes of users. So you consider pedestrians, you consider cyclists, and you consider motor vehicles. And so as this is new construction, um, you know, it doesn't really cost a lot of extra money to be able to do that. And it'll take a little bit of time, but it'll happen. Um, Here at Texas A&M, we just launched a, um, a bike share program, which will have 4,000 mm. uh, dockless bikes in the, in the fall. And um, the company, uh, OFO, is actually uh, paying for it. There's a $35 a semester subscription fee for students, and then it's covered. And so these public-private partnerships are also a great way to be able to do these things without um, much of a cost to the, the government of the state. That's great. So they pay $35 a year or a month? A semester. A semester. So 70 a year. And yeah. have access. That's great. As much as you want in the 4,000, you can find one anywhere. And yeah. then we tell people, you know, you don't need to buy a bike because they're, they're much cheaper this way. You don't need to worry about maintenance. You don't need to worry about somebody stealing it. Overall, are we getting healthier? Is this – I mean, we hear these numbers and um, it's scary that one state could have a 20-year life expectancy longer than another. Is But overall, are we doing better? That's a great question. Um, yes and no. And so um, we have been doing better and better um, for quite a long time. We've seen rates of cancer come down. We've seen rates of heart disease come down. Um, what's happening now is, you know, obesity has been rising. And so it looks like this generation will have um, shorter lifespans than the one before it. And then what's even more concerning is the opioid epidemic. Um, yeah. You know, we've seen this incredible increase in, in opioid overdose deaths. And we're seeing, um, especially among white women um, and in the South, a reduction in life expectancy. Wow. And how do we how do we do compared to other countries? Where are we? I mean, it seems like this is where we should be leading, but I'm sure we're not. We're not. You know, we we pay more for health care than any other country in the world. And we finish somewhere in the 20s in terms of of life expectancy and and care. And so what I always tell people is that we we don't invest enough in public health. We invest a lot in care. But, you know, if we can prevent people from getting sick, it's cheaper and we get a better result from it. Did did you see a difference when... You know, Obamacare was being instituted. Was more money being paid to, you know, public health and public health care at yes, that time? Yes, a reduction in the, in the public health fund. Um, and, and so, you know, part of looking at this, and that's 
Obamacare, I think, did a lot of good things, but also came short in a lot of areas. And a lot of it was having that comprehensive look at, um, you know, at prevention across the nation. It looked a lot at getting people health insurance, which is extremely important, but it wasn't the entire picture. Mm. What, uh, so what advice would you give us, just anybody out there listening, wherever they are, you, you kept bringing up tobacco and physical health. What else, what else should we make sure that we are at least you know, advocating for, pushing for in our communities to make sure we have healthier, healthier communities? You know, I think a lot of it is is um, also looking at the environment that we live in. Um, and so we see higher rates of uh, air pollution uh, in a lot of the southern states. We tend to be, you know, high industrial areas here in Texas. Obviously, oil and gas is a huge industry, so also Louisiana. And so making sure we also have uh, clean environments. We saw a lot after Harvey um, coming in in terms of Superfund sites flooding and, and uh, coming into communities. That's another area that certainly we can make a difference. South tends to be disproportionately affected by heavy industry. That's interesting. Man, I mean, and, and then um, I, I guess, too, at some point, make make the city more walkable. So a lot of these cities in the South, I read in your article, just aren't walkable. They're, they're not, they don't, they're not conducive to healthy living. Yes, yeah. And so, you know, it was, it was interesting. I was actually in um, Winston-Salem uh, over the weekend, which was rated uh, second from last in walkability. And it's a community that's really taking it seriously. And so they're actually closing one of the major highways into town for two years uh, to build a greenway, and they're building uh, walkable trails all across um, the city. So, you know, these cities can make a change, and I think when they get it, when leadership gets it, um, it really can make a difference. Greenville, South Carolina is another example of a city that's built this incredible trail um, called the Swamp Rabbit Trail, and they're seeing you know, differences. They're seeing conferences and business and everybody coming to the city because they've made it walkable. So I think there's a business case for a lot of these things, too. No, I do, too. And uh, we appreciate it, Jay. I think this is just great insight for all of us to know that there is stuff we can do, and the sooner the better – um, and we, we probably need to make sure we're pushing it from the bottom up as well as the top down. Jay Maddock is his name. Dr. Jay Maddock, again, is the dean of the School of Public Health at Texas A&M University, uh, walking us through why it is that some parts of the South are the least healthiest regions in the United States. Interesting, interesting insight. And by the way, it's not one type of, uh, you know, it's not one ethnicity. It's not one location. It's There's multiple causes, multiple effects, multiple issues going on. It's complex. But the idea that one part of this country would have 20 years less uh, to live because of where you were born and where you were raised, that's crazy, right? We'll continue the journey. Do what we can to uh, help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, it's not easy. And uh, if you've ever, I mean, it's can you imagine trying to stay healthy, just do what you've got to do to stay healthy? But what about... Uh, living in a city where it, they make it even harder to stay healthy. And you may not even recognize that, like, uh, the, the data showed that in Massachusetts, one in uh, – there's 547 physicians for every 100,000 people. 
And in the South, in those five states that are struggling in the South, there's 87 physicians for every 100,000 people. It's crazy. And so at some point, it's not enough to just only tell people, you know, you just got to be disciplined. Well, you can be the disciplined one in those areas. You totally can be, by the way. Um, but uh, there are some things that, that we all need to do to be to exercise a little more discipline in our own life. So think about your life. Where do you need to pick up a little bit more discipline? Where do you need to really get your act together a little bit more? And I want you to have an idea in your head because whether it's just watching less Netflix, exercising more, um, spending more time with your family, being disciplined to put your phone away, those are all things that each and every one of us could uh, and probably should be doing, right? Um, One of the things we we might want to do too is to um, choose to focus our firepower one one of the things I've found is if I keep trying to do everything and be disciplined everywhere, I mean, discipline is a limited reserve. You have so much uh, energy and ability in you to do something. And the, some of the research shows that the the later in the day, the harder and harder it gets for people to actually exercise more and more discipline. It might be easier, especially if you spend an entire day having to be disciplined, not getting mad at people, not being you know angry, not having blow-ups, not eating that really good lunch. If you've been exercising discipline all day, you might know you might notice that the later it gets in the day, the harder this gets. So uh, instead of having five different things that every day you're trying to exercise your discipline on, what if we could just try to become more disciplined on one thing? a day. Let's try to just use as much of our firepower as we can on that one thing. And sometimes if you may have noticed that like when you're using a garden hose, um, you put your thumb over the end of the hose and you kind of restrict it a little bit. And by restricting the hose, you can actually create a stronger stream and a more directed focus stream. That's that's kind of what we need to do is there's power in restricting a little bit and focusing our, our uh, discipline to be able to handle something um, and, and to be able to take it on a little bit more in a focused way. Uh, there's a great book by Greg McKeon called Essentialism, another book by Sean Acor called The um, Happiness Advantage. Both are great books that have, that are now sharing all of the research about how to use – uh, how to create positive psychology in your life, how to be happier. Sean Acord talks about a rule called the 22nd rule in his book, The Happiness Advantage. And that rule basically uh, helps you know people that waste time get out of it. They call it activation energy. You know, it takes energy to get a project or an activity started. It's just that little spark that everyone needs to have. But you don't need to always have a ton more discipline to do it. You just need to decrease the amount of activation energy that is required to start a task, right? So if I, for example, um, if I like watching television at night and I'm trying to stop watching television, then I need to increase the energy it would take me to watch television, so an example that Sean Acor gives is, well, what you ought to do is go put your remote control upstairs in your bedroom um, so and or the batteries upstairs in the bedroom and the remote control in your office. So if you want to watch TV, you now have to get up, 
walk to your office, go all the way upstairs, get your batteries, and then put your batteries in and then come back down and watch TV. And because that's so much activation energy, you're probably less likely to do it. And the reverse is true. If you want to get something done and make sure you are accomplishing tasks easier, then you've got to figure out a way to get that activity started and going within 20 seconds. So if you wanted to watch more TV, right, then you'd want to have the remote right near you as close as you can, as easy as you can. You'd want to spend all the energy to get your four remotes converted into one universal remote. Bada boom, bada bing, you're done. So that is called the 20-second rule. And um, you don't necessarily need a ton more discipline to do that. You do just need to make sure that we are focused and doing and making the, the what seemingly is difficult, make it a little easier to do. Uh, another thing you could do is make sure that you have routines and rely heavily on your disciplined routines. So make traditions, make habits. If you want to make it easier to run in the morning, make sure that you have a routine of having your shoes right by your bed. Maybe even go to bed and sleep in your jogging or your running clothes that you will be running in tomorrow. And then make a routine of how you're going to get up. And once you've kind of turned it into a habit or a routine or a pattern, you don't need to think about it every day. It's going to – the pattern itself will operate on you. You can also evaluate your routines regularly and and make stuff happen. There are ways, folks, that we – each and every one of us can become a lot more disciplined if that's what we're seeking after. And – or we can sit back and just keep saying it's hard. It's really hard and keep telling the story of how hard it is to exercise discipline, how hard it is to uh, to do and be what you need to be. It's uh, – again, and I'm, this isn't coming from a guy that is a seriously disciplined person. But I I do have habits. I do have patterns. I do have routines. And when I start to realize that all I need is about 20 seconds to get something going – Another thing is you don't even need to focus on doing the biggest thing. You could go choose what's the smallest thing I can do today to start to move my body more and exercise more. What's the least thing I can do? And if you would just go do that least thing, you would actually probably be more inclined to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So again, it doesn't have to be the biggest things in the world. Sometimes it just has to be anything. And that's uh, one of the fastest keys, I think, for any of us to get uh, a little bit more disciplined. Uh, Again, the two books are um, Essentialism by Greg McKeon and um, The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acorn. Good stuff, folks. We'll continue the journey. More fun straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and be more disciplined. With only one life to live, sometimes we get caught up with the idea that every moment of our life has to be the best moment. Licensed clinical social worker Diane Barth suggests that striving to be or have or do the best could be costing you the pleasure of the good enough moments sprinkled through our everyday. She joined us not long ago to talk about five ways that good enough is exactly what we need. We started that interview by asking, why are are we so into chasing the best? Well, there are a lot of reasons. I mean, we live in a very competitive society. We have this idea that to compete, you have to be 
to compete and be successful, you have to win and be the best, which is fine sometimes, but it's not always possible, and you can still enjoy, um, you know, you can enjoy things that you're doing even if you're not winning, whatever that happens to mean. Right. Is it, is it um, as you look at it, we, there, there are just as many good moments of life, and in fact, probably significantly more good moments of life, if we could just relax and see them. Oh, for sure. I mean, we've all had the experience where, um, I hope my son will forgive me, I'm going to use him as an example, <laughs> but he is a, an athlete, and he loves, uh, he, he's a rower, and he loves rowing. He loves being on the water. He loves the uh, energy of the team. He loves everything about it. And it is very hard for him to really appreciate that he doesn't have to win. I'm sorry, I should change that. <clears throat> it used to be hard. He's gotten older, and it's much easier for him now. But you, you really don't have to win at that sport to, to have a wonderful time at it. Mm. I mean, because that's it. You don't have to be the best. My son's trying out for a football league this year or right now, and – you know, on the field, there's going to have five teams, and one team is the very best team that will go against all the best teams in the rest of the leagues, and the other four teams are just going to be really fun. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, wouldn't it be nice if the best team could be having fun too? Right. Because the, the reality is they will not be the best always. Yeah. They will lose. They will, you know, sometimes they won't play as well. You know, I talk about this in my blog. They, sometimes they won't play as well this week as they did last week. Mm-hmm. They won't play as well, you know, today as they might tomorrow. And wouldn't it be nice if they could be enjoying what they're doing while they're not necessarily doing it the best? Is um, I can hear some in their heads saying, well, shouldn't we teach our kids to be the best instead of being good enough? I mean, but but really, when you say good enough, good enough is just you're great. I mean, you're you're there. You're in the game. It's happening. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think that one of the problems with the whole striving for the best is that we're what we what we're talking about, although we don't necessarily say it, is that we're striving to be perfect. Right. And that's just not humanly possible. So part of the the real work, and it's work for, I think, almost anybody who lives in a competitive uh, society, which we all do these days, but the, the, the work is to be able to say that, you know, I'm trying to do as well as I can do in this moment at this time, and but I also want to really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, the the other thing is that I I love the the this quote from D W Winnicott who was a British psychoanalyst who used to say over and over again that um, being a perfect parent is really not the path to being a good parent. Mm-hmm. That actually being a good enough parent is much better than being the best parent because <laughs> you by being good enough you're letting your child have room to grow, to maybe do things you can't do, yeah. To, yeah. to have space to be things that you're not. And, and to I experience that, really, right? Sorry, say to, that again. I was just going to say to experience. I mean, if all of us were the best parents, um, then it seems like we would create great kids, but they also wouldn't have experienced difficult parenting. 
Exactly. And I don't think we would create great kids because I think we would create, we would create intimidated kids or kids who felt they could never be good enough for us yeah. or as good as us. I don't think that would make for great kids. That's but, it's true. But the other thing that you just said I think is really important is, is that if our kids don't have moments of feeling frustrated and disappointed and dissatisfied, throughout their childhood, how are they going to deal with it when they get to be adults? Mm-hmm. They, they need those experiences to build the, the muscles and the skills for dealing with those things, which are going to happen. Yeah. In your Psychology Today um, article, you bring up a really good point about the best doctor may, mm-hmm. may not actually be the one you want. Right. Why is that? Explain that. Well, I was, just, I was actually talking about this with some friends who are both doctors the other day. And, and one of the things is that, first of all, the best doctor for me may not be the best doctor for you. Uh, right. So one thing is you have to figure out what kind of a doctor you need, what kind of a person you need. Who do you talk to most easily? Who can you ask questions to? But another thing is that, you know, we get these, these um, articles. I don't know if you all get them out there, but in New York we get these articles in New York Magazine about um, who's the best doctor in the city, who's the best doctor in the country. And the problem with those best lists is that often if you can get an appointment with one of these doctors, <laughs> right. you may not get more than two and a half minutes of conversation with them. Yeah, and, and if you need more than that, boy, they aren't the best. Exactly, exactly. And most of us do need more than that, right? Yeah, right. So sometimes the top surgeon in the country is not really going to give you the same attention and the same um, care that somebody who is maybe, quote-unquote, not the best, but is thoughtful and interested in you and wants to work with you with whatever the problem is that you've got, will give you. Hmm. And I mean, I look at that, too, of a doctor that's maybe done, you know, maybe they're 55, 60, they're kind of wrapping up their practice, they've, they're really good at what they do, but they may not have all the latest training. Or then you can go get the young buck that just got out, of you know college, they just got all the latest and greatest, but they maybe just don't have the calm demeanor. It's just exactly. really so. It's so. It's, so so much of this is about if not just striving to find the best, but striving striving to find my what's good for me. Exactly. Huh. Exactly. Good. Yeah. And, and and then I guess um, then then you then you don't I guess have to stress. What does it do for me in the end? Yeah. By just having the good, it's just less stressful. Yeah. Boy. And it gives you what you're looking for most often. I mean, if you, if I think that one of the things with this striving to be the best or have the best is, is that we stop paying attention to what what we actually need, mm-hmm. and so we we move towards some sort of external value system that may not have anything to do with what what is really going on for us. Yeah. Yeah, There's, Brene Brown, who I really like, has a has a thing where she talks about that. Um, I mean, you know, striving for the best is is in some ways also tr- striving for perfectionism, which she talks about a lot. And and she talks about um, that, that perfectionism is not about self improvement or healthy achievement. It's about l- or looking for approval and acceptance. Uh, right. And I think that's true a lot of times when we're we, even if it's, we're looking for the best doctor, we think we're we're going to get someone who is going to make us, I don't know, acceptable or or better. And I guess if if we're always dropping like the name of our doctor, 
Mm-hmm. Then, then it is that we're kind of caught up in our comparing. Look, I mean, trying to use that as a as a stepping stone to look better. Yes, yes. So I guess that's one of the signs. If really, if the best is something you have to drive so people can see it, or you know, you always have to bring up so it's there, it's part of you. Then you might be caught up into this perfection and thing. Exactly. That again was Diane Barth and LCSW uh, walking us through how you know good enough. It's sometimes it is better than best, and but it's not easy, is it? There's something about each of our brains, our heads, that makes us think, well, I've got to be the very best. And then we even say you've got to be the very best you can be. But do you? I mean, is everything about that we have to accomplish in life have to be done the very best we can do? It just seems like a, we're setting ourselves up, aren't we? I don't know. I don't want to create an out for everybody but or a cop-out for everybody, but um, sometimes it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's not about what you're doing. I mean, I would think if something matters deeply, yeah, do your best on it. But if it's how you park your car, you may not need to bring it in, bring it out, bring it in, bring it out, bring it in, bring it out until it's the perfect parking place in your garage. Just park your flipping car. Ah, the stress of being human. Isn't it crazy? Well, we'll continue the journey, folks. That's why we're doing the show, to give you the information, the tools you need to live longer, to love stronger, and to let things go when you need to let them go. We'll continue the journey. More straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy tax day to you. Ah, you got your taxes paid or you're about to, or I think you have until the end of today. Or you just went, oh, no. I forgot. <laughs> I didn't even remember that. Darn it. Well, whatever it is, uh, today's the day. You'll want to get those uh, done, I think, by the end of today and get them in. And, uh, you know, get your check written. Or in my case, get both of them written. I, I wrote, I wrote, I paid the same taxes twice because I love America that much. Wow. I That's care. inspiring. It's totally inspiring. It, I wish, I wish it was, I wish we meant to do it. We just uh, – that's just how not organized we are. And by the way, America – an American woman wins the Boston Marathon for the first time since 1985. Yeah. How cool is that? They also said it was the slowest times in years because of the bad weather they were running in. Was it really? Yeah. Wow. Now, now, granted, the times are – you know, they're running 26 miles of yeah. superhuman effort because, you know, it would take me three days, but – Yeah. Yeah. I could drive it really it, fast. It was raining, it was <laughs> snowing, and they're just running yeah. down the street. So Yeah. But, the, yeah, first time in what? How long did they say? 20? Since, since 85. Yeah. 22, 23 years. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, Desiree Linden, first American woman to win since uh, 85. That's awesome. That's awesome. There's a lot of cool history there. Yeah. Um, so Boston Marathon, if you're planning on doing that, today we'll be talking about how to be a better grandparent. Huh. Which is important, being a grandparent. So I'm a little under the weather, and my granddaughter walks in my room last night and wants to have a talk. 
I just told her to stay away. Stand over there. <laughs> I'd love to have a talk, but I'm sick. Stay over there. I don't want to get you sick. That's in her best interest. That's in, it's totally in her best interest. And what does she want to talk about? Or she is just it private. She just wants to talk. She's okay. two and a half. She just sits down and just loves talking. What does she call you? Uh, Papa. Mm. That's so sweet. It's really cute. It's the cutest thing that happens to me. I'm going to teach my daughter to call my father old man. Oh, really? Yeah. Mr. Old Man. Mr. Old Man. That's good. That's one way to do it, isn't it? Yeah. One way to do it. So we'll get to all of that, but let's first get to the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? Sean Hannity responded to uh, the revelations on Monday that he was represented by longtime Trump attorney Michael Cohen, claiming that Cohen has never represented him and that he never paid legal fees. Cohen, Michael Cohen has never represented me in any matter. I have never retained him, received an invoice, or paid legal fees. I have occasionally had brief discussions with him about legal questions about which I wanted his input and perspective. Uh, Hannity said uh, on Twitter, uh, Hannity hasn't yet said how specifically he used Cohen's services, but that the lawyer, other clients included, his other clients included President Trump and uh, GOP fundraiser Elliot uh, Briotti. The three clients were revealed in federal court Monday. Later Monday, Hannity said that the discussions with Cohen dealt almost exclusively about real estate, and he may have given him 10 bucks. You know, so there's like a transaction so that you can, I guess, what, retain services? Is that how that works? Okay, That's so weird. The Trump administration is reaching out to the Arab nations to have them replace the U.S. forces in Syria after the defeat of the so-called Islamic State, the Wall Street Journal reports. President Trump's new national security advisor, John Bolton, has reportedly contacted Egypt's acting intelligence chief to ask if Egypt could... uh, you know, put their forces in there, kind of contribute to the cause. Officials cited by the journal say the Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates have also been asked to send troops in addition to billions of dollars for, Ooh, wow. res- for restoration efforts in the war-torn country. Now you have to rebuild what you've blown up in Syria. Yeah, absolutely. The news comes as Trump seeks to pull U.S. troops out of the country, a move that may have been jeopardized by, you know, airstrikes. <clears throat> <laughs> like we're a foot in, a foot out. We're trying to are we in or we out? out what, what are doing. we doing? Two officials told the Associated Press that California has rejected President Donald Trump's initial plans to send National Guard troops to the southern border because the work is considered too closely tied to immigration enforcement. In the ongoing negotiation between the federal government and the state, California has asserted that it will not permit federal troops to fix and repair vehicles, operate remotely controlled surveillance cameras, to report suspicious activity on the border, operate radios, you know, mission support. Negotiations soured over the weekend between the two parties as federal officials saw the state's restrictions as onerous, Mm. according to the AP. So that, that... conflict is ongoing. Tammy Duckworth made history when she became the first U.S. Senator to give birth while in office, and now the Illinois Democrat wants to make history again. This time, it would change an age-old Senate rule. According to Politico, Duckworth has submitted a resolution that would allow children under a year old to be on the Senate floor during votes, something that has been a long-standing hmm. rule. They've forbidden that. But Duckworth said that she needs the change chiefly because she wants to take her maternity leave without missing important votes. There you go. That's cool. The Senate Rules Committee reportedly may move on the measure as soon as this week. Political says the rule change is expected to pass. That's great. So she could have her kid over there in the carrier yeah. while she's trying to vote on whatever There's issues there. There's been so much weird stuff going on on the floor of that thing. And I just want to see those guys try to say no to something and then just the tidal wave after all the totally. Me Too issues yeah. and things that are going on there. As if there aren't, weren't already babies in Congress. Right. There That's we go. Right. A bunch of babies. That was a good one. Finally, a Michigan gym patron looking for a Wi-Fi connection found one named Remote Detonator 
prompting an evacuation and precautionary search of the facility by a bomb-sniffing dog. Nothing was found in the search Sunday at the gym in Saginaw Township, about 85 miles northwest of Detroit. Saginaw police say that the patron uh, brought the Wi-Fi connection's name to the attention of a manager who evacuated the building and called police. The gym was closed for about three hours. The police report that there's no criminal, no crime, no threat, but they do note that some people like to have fun with their Wi-Fi names. Holy cow. Like FBI surveillance van or don't steal my Wi-Fi or, <laughs> you know, the force or whatever you want to call Unbelievable. it. Unbelievable. People have fun with it. Someone called it bomb detonator and people freaked out. <clears throat> I mean, if you were going to have a remote control bomb detonator, yeah. you probably wouldn't label it that. No. That would not be good. <laughs> but, yeah. What are you going to do? What do you got to do? You got to check into it. Yes. That's why, yeah. So they did. Isn't Found that amazing? Nothing. We don't think we know enough, and then we, but then we just play one little prank, and the next thing you know, you shut down. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, this could go anywhere. This could be your building, your department. This could be your school. Could be. Crazy stuff. Okay. We'll take a break, folks, and when we come back, we'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Grandparents can have a big impact on the lives of their grandchildren. Likewise, grandparents can be an important source of information for their children who are trying to raise their 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 kids. So what is the role of a grandparent? Uh, joining us to talk about it is Leslie Zinberg, one of the writers of the GrandparentsLink.com blog. And she's here today to share some t- uh, tips on how to be a better grandparent. Leslie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. This is uh, – I'm a new – not new, two, two and a half years a grandparent, about to be a grandparent again, and um, with twins coming down the pike. But I'm wondering – I mean, it's – nobody teaches you how to be a grandparent. Nobody kind of walks you through all of uh, the important lessons that and roles that you could play. Talk to us about um, – uh, what what we need to know? What is what, and how would you kind of define and set up the role of a grandparent? Okay, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Um, I think the role of a grandparent is to be a real friend, somebody that your grandchild trusts, and somebody that you that your grandchild loves being with. I mean, you're just. I I think that one of the best things about being a grandparent is that you get to spend quality time with your grandchild. It's you know you get to have them for a while, and then and then if if they don't live with you, then you get to give them back. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think it's really important how you spend your time with the grandchild, and it doesn't have to be that you're buying presents. You know, we always say that that you know presents p r e s E-N-C-E, is much more important than buying presents. Yeah. It's being with them. And it can be just making them aware of just the whole world because they make you aware of the world. All of a sudden, as a grandparent, you forget maybe that those stars in the sky are so incredibly beautiful. 
and then your grandchild will point out something to you and you think, wow. So many of the things that I've taken for granted for the last whatever in my life that I looked at with my children, I'm now being they're, it's being pointed out again with my grandchildren. Yeah. Is it? Is it? I mean, I, that's I think the key, isn't it? That we, it's almost like we might need to make sure we, we slow down and mm-hmm. and and be there for them at this time. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it is being mindful. I mean, this is the word you hear a lot now, um, but we talk about being mindful, paying attention to the moment, not being in your car with your grandchildren and having talking on the phone. Or, I mean, if you're having the radio on, maybe you're listening to to your favorite station, which has some of your favorite songs. Yeah. You know, maybe it's teaching them. You know, my kids, my grandkids know all about James Taylor and yeah. Alison Krauss and all of my favorites, Simon and Garfunkel. And they can sing those songs because we sing them together in That's the car. Great. It's, and it's exposing them to your, to your life. And letting them hear about your life, too, because you also want to show them tradition and yeah. it's carrying on the traditions, whether it's um, a silly tradition that you all, we, we sing a birthday song, um, and we have a couple, a couple of things at the end, and of course now they've, they've added to that, or they've, you know, they've learned about our, you know, learned about let's say, religion, or they learn about um, just the traditions of a holiday that you have. So just the, that, and they become important because it's something that they have year after year after year, which gives them stability, which gives them a, a, a sense of foundation, which gives them a sense of belonging. Yeah. Um, and I think that's all so important. Then you can just, you know, you can just being there and reading a book, reading together is so incredible. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I guess that's, that's the thing is, um, has the role of grandparent changed a little bit? I mean, we know the technology has, we know, um, you know, just kind of our, our lifestyles are changing and becoming a little bit faster paced. Does that, does that change what we should be doing or could be doing as grandparents? Well, I think you have to look at it two ways. I think that you can't ignore technology. So there's, you know, you can figure out which are the best apps. And I have apps on my on on my phone, and my partner has apps on her phone, and, and our grandchildren play on the apps with us. Right. It, it, the the key is, I remember raising my own kids and not using the television as a babysitter. And I think that's the same thing you have to do today. You can't use the television as a babysitter. You can't use the computer or the iPad or the iPhone. You can use it, but I mean, you, they, they, I don't think that they are a substitute uh, babysitter. Right. So if you're, if you're working in a, if you're doing a, an app together and you're playing a game together, then that's great. Or if there's, you know, um, my grandkids are, have computers at school, and they do some of their homework on computers. And, you know, I think that that's fabulous. Mm-hmm. But we can't, and so we can't ignore that. And at the same time, it cannot be a substitute 
mom or dad or grandparent. Right. I mean, the most fun is hanging out with your grandkids and cooking together or going to the park together or taking a walk together or um, it's just, it, it makes it so easy. I mean, my, you know, I have a granddaughter who is nine, going to be 10 next week, and she has decided she wants to be a chef. Um, and so she experiments in my kitchen, which is great, except that I have glitter all over my, (laughs) (laughs) all over my, um, dining table. And we, we make all kinds of things and it's, the kitchen is horrendous mess when she's done, but we've, we have such fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, and you're, and it, I mean, you're, if all, if your worst thing you've got to do is clean up the glitter with her. I mean, that's great. And right. the thing like you brought up earlier, that they're a real friend and that they really look at grandma as a real friend, someone they can trust, someone they love to spend time with. That doesn't happen if you make them come, you know, and, and only do what you like to do. Yes. What you want, what you're doing is you're building memories. Yeah. Um, and, and you, as a grandparent, get to see the world through their eyes. So you're expanding, as a grandparent, you're expanding your mind, and you're getting out and being active. I mean, going to a museum. Right. It expands the child's mind, and it expands the grandparent's mind. And if you use grandparenting, I think, the right way, then you, as an individual, stay younger, because you're learning as they're learning. Yeah. I mean, it really does keep you... Younger and up to date. I mean, my granddaughter brought me a movie she wanted to watch that was, I guess, it's a new Disney uh, character that she loves, and I've never heard of it. And I'm like, oh my heavens, I've never even heard of this. But um, but now I feel like I'm a little bit more informed, a little bit more in tune, and my uh, everybody's watching this. It's I don't know. Anyway, I think it's. It is a way to to be connected and and almost to what I didn't I guess I didn't anticipate is how much I would love my grandchild. Um, I love him every bit as much as as every one of my children, but um, it's just a different responsibility and it's almost one that is just nothing but giving. You can just give, give, yes. give, give, and then like you said, lovingly hand them back. And yes, and then and you will and you, and as they get as they get older, they give 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 to you. Yeah. Just by a conversation, their conversations are, as they get older, are so amazing. Or what they, I have a six-year-old grandson, and um, we were standing in the kitchen making something, and he looked at me, and my husband was out of town, and he looked at me, and he said. I think I need to spend the night here tonight. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, well, Grandpa's out of town. He doesn't call him Grandpa. He calls him Jeezy. Jeezy's out of town, and I don't think you should be here alone. Oh, wow. Cute. And I thought, okay, this is a six-year-old little boy who is deeply thinking and thinking about what's going on, not just about himself, but he has now gone beyond himself. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Boy, that's that's and and two, boy, just just that the reassurance it gives you, but also the the 
that gentle reassurance that, man, these kids are great. These kids are doing fine because it's, sometimes it's easy to be generational and, yeah, those younger kids, they're just so messed up. But you have little moments like that and you realize really how how good we all have it. Right, right. I mean, it's really to be in the moment and realize what you're doing right now. It's to be it's a little saying that that we have which is be where you are. So, you know, you're in the car, you're driving them from place to place because that as a grandparent is a big role. Yeah. You can sing together, you can talk together, you can play games together, you can talk about the school day, you can it doesn't matter what you're doing, it's just that you're being together and you're unplugged. Mm. Um, and again, I don't think there's anything wrong with technology, but I think you have to not use technology as a substitute babysitter. Yeah. But work with it. And and I also think that that's the great thing about grandparenting is that, as I said before, you learn as they learn. I have learned so much more about apps and computers and even coding. Yeah. Because I've had to. Just as you had to keep up with your your kids, yeah, you need to keep up with your your grandkids. But there is your there's a certain joy that you that as a grandparent you have that you can't even explain to somebody until they become a grandparent. Hmm. So true. We're speaking with Leslie Zinberg, who is the uh, is an author and also uh, has been married for forty eight years with two children two grandchildren, and is currently co-writing a book on mindful grandparenting. Also, she has co-written two other books, The Pink and Blue Baby Pages and The Pink and Blue Toddler and Preschooler Pages. She's walking us through some of her insights about being a, a better grandparent. What um, I always worry, too, about my I, I want to love and be with my grandkids as much as I can. I also want my my children to be able to to make sure that they're, I'm not stealing their role, I'm not overstepping my boundaries. How do we walk that fine line? Yeah, well, that's that's a that's a funny line. I mean, it's a little bit like being a mother-in-law. Yeah. You know, they tell you as a mother-in-law to, you know, to open your pocketbook and close your mouth. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and I think as um, a grandparent, you have to be careful. You know, it's one thing when they're in your under under your guise and, and you're in your home and you have them, they're gonna have to abide by your rules. Yeah. I mean sometimes your rules are different than the parents' rules. Um but and you also have to appreciate what the parents want or what they don't want. So I I think for example, I will give you our grandkids that have to eat gluten free. And that is a rule that our, their parents have, and it's for their benefit. Mm-hmm. And I've had to learn what is gluten-free and what's not. Hmm. And I have to honor that because that's important to their parents. You know, I think you have to honor what their parents want or what they don't want. Sometimes I don't always agree with how their parents want them to do something. Yeah. And you know what? It's not up to me. I'm not the parent. So if I'm asked my opinion, yes. 
but many times I do not offer my opinion unless I, you know if it's if it's something in a dangerous situation yeah or something that is frightening to you or something that you're overly concerned about overly 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 concerned about then I think you have to open your mouth but otherwise I think you have to really honor what the parents want because they're not going to give you their grand their their kids right or trust you with their kids if you are not going to honor what's important to them. Boy, and there's that role, right, where you're, you know, we're we're used to maybe telling our kids how it should be, but once mm-hmm. you have grandkids, um they they have your children now have this special role of being a parent that you don't want to step on those toes or you might impede. Exactly. I mean, and that is what our grandparentslink.com, our website, we we explain, we write about different things. I mean, last uh, Sunday we talked about, uh, we had an article about how divorce affects the family and tips on that. We talk about ways, we talk about the difficulty. I mean, we had one article on um, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law hmm. and that relationship. Yeah. And, and and at the same time, we talk about, we give you ways to be creative with your grandkids, but we also try and talk about the difference of the approach from a parent and a grandparent. Hmm. We did. We had one funny little article about a grandfather who talked about the fact that a drone delivered a pizza to their back to their to the backyard, and he was. No, he couldn't believe it because this is something that he would never have done. Right. Um, and it was a whole new world for him. And, you know, that's what we try and talk about with on GrandparentsLink.com is about your role. Number one, take, taking care of your own self. Because if you don't take care of your own self and you're not relevant, then you're not good to anybody. Yeah. So I think that, you know, with with all of this, the biggest thing is, yes, honor what your your kids want. And then if there's something special you want to do with them, it's always so easy to ask, may I do this? Is this okay with you? Rather than just grabbing and taking. And doing it. You also um, talk about how important it is to take vacations with your grandchildren. Why Why is that? Well, you know, whenever you go away, and I mean, sometimes it, it's wonderful if you can go away with the grandparents and the grandkids first so that you understand how everybody operates together. I think that's really important. Whenever you go away, I don't know about about you, but there's something that happens when you step out of your ordinary environment. You take a step back. Yeah. You breathe a little deeper. You reflect. You spend more quality time. And that happens if you're with your grandkids. Even if, you know, let's say just going away overnight. Yeah. It's a, t- it's a bonding experience. And that's what the biggest thing is, is to make the grandkids and the grandparents bond together and feel secure. That's great. And have some time to, to just to learn anew and to... I mean, it's it's not like there's just something that happens when you get in the routine as a grandparent. But when you're you are vacationing and you can get out of routine, some pretty interesting things can happen that I think are very additive and wonderful. Right. Um, Leslie, you take, 
All oh. possibilities are open. Oh, yeah. Yes. What, what would you say is the one thing that we can all do today um, as a grandparent that just this one thing would make the biggest difference to our grandchildren and to our own lives? Uh, probably the one thing I would say is just to be present, to be in the moment, not anyplace else. Just realize what you've got right there in front of you. Yeah. And, and, and enjoy that moment. Not be worried about the next thing you're going to be doing. What's next? Yeah. What am I, where am I going to go from here? No, no. Enjoy just the moments together. It's good stuff. Leslie Zinberg's her name. Go check out the website, grandparentslink.com. It's a great blog uh, that will walk you through some of those articles she was talking about and help us all to be more present with those that we love, those that are around us. There really is no greater calling, I think, than um, being a grandparent. And that's somebody that's been a parent and a spouse. And I mean, it really is this such a unique relationship where they already have the kids have their parents. They just now have a grandparent, a parent that uh, can relate to them, connect to them in such a deep way, such a profound way. We will continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We, uh, with only one life to live, right, sometimes we get caught up with the idea that every moment of our life has to be the best moment possible. Licensed clinical social worker Diane Barth uh, suggests that uh, it doesn't have to be that way, that we, we maybe need to let go of the idea of being the best and just be okay with being good enough. Uh, we wanted to revisit one of her interviews, and in that interview, I started the interview by asking her or by saying, we want the best, but the best job is the one best thing for you, right? And that's, that's not always uh, necessary. Oh, absolutely. It's a really important point. And, and put it on the other end of the spectrum also. I see it with, um, co- you know, recent college grads yeah. who are looking for their first job, and they feel that it has to be the best job and it has to be the right job. And, oh. you know, one of the problems with that is that your first job out of college is almost never the best job. And it hopefully is not the job you're going to stay in for the rest of your life. But it's a chance to really learn some skills that you don't learn in college and that you probably haven't developed or um, new skills that you need to develop. And I actually think that's one of the biggest problems with the fantasy of the best is that it interferes with our ability to learn. We mm. think we're supposed to know it all, we're supposed to do it all, we're supposed to have it all already, so we can't learn. Well, and how many kids want to have the cars and the homes that their parents have, and yet, uh, you know, we didn't get there overnight. Right, exactly. And, and what's so funny about it, too, is many of the parents that now have the cars and the homes, they're not even happy. They don't even right. like what they've got. Yes, Yes. You know, and they'd give anything. But it's I guess it's just that comparative mentality. And I it's I guess it's just something I guess it's so natural to a human being. Well, and I think you put your finger on something super important, which is that the more we are able to appreciate, as you said before, the good, you know, yeah. the more we will stop 
you know, struggling for something that we either can't have or don't have. Um, I think that this idea that we're supposed to have the best, the best car, the best, the best new car, the best house, the you know, the best mm-hmm. new dishwasher, whatever it is that we think we're supposed to have, or that we feel like is the best thing to have, um, inter- you know, it, as you say, it just stops us from enjoying what we do have. Is there? It seems like one place we we really might want to do our best is just in our own personal um, delivery of of um, our skills or our talents. Shouldn't we try to do our best job? You know, I, I, I that's one of the things I write about. That I think that that's a really complex question because, of course, we want to strive to do the best we can do, but um, I. My first um, uh, supervisor when I graduated from social work school was a really interesting guy who used to say that, you know, yes, you want to do absolutely as well as you can do, but what you need to know is that, you know, one day you've got more energy or more or somehow things are just clicking. Yeah. And that day, your best is going to be better than another day when you've got a little less energy or you're hungry or you're tired or you had a fight with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And what he said over and over again, because as you may have figured out, I was and struggled with my whole life being a perfectionist. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So over and over again, he would say to me, you know, you're not going to ever be perfect. You're going to make mistakes. I mean, he actually is the one who taught me that you learn from mistakes. You really learn from mistakes. But that your your striving to be your best needs to be with a recognition that today's best is not the same as another day's best. That's true. I guess that's it. It's it's based on the conditions, the needs, the abilities, the timing. Your your best is going to change. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and yeah, you you really don't. But we do as humans. You probably ought to find a way to not expect to do more than you can really do. Yeah. But we're yep. horrible critics, aren't we, of ourselves? We are. We are. We're the worst critics. Absolutely. Mm. We need to stop that. What comes <laughs> after best? I mean, what's so funny about it is, so you finally, and you see this a lot, like on Pinterest or on certain sites where somebody has now made the perfect meal. Right. And it's beautifully decorated right. and and it's all laid out. So once and you've delivered the perfect, yeah, the, yeah, and you got your picture, but then at my house it would be the boys would sit down and they'd all be like, "Ew, <laughs> ew, what is that?" Right. And so after we've attained best, then what? Yep. It's, yep. It just seems like we're setting ourselves up to really be kicked in the chin again. Yep. Because <laughs> it's it tomorrow's another day. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, which is why we're chasing a dream, aren't we? Yes. But it's a it's yes, and it's a problematic dream. I, I actually I um, I come from a family who and my and my husband and my son are big sports fans. Yeah. And I actually think that there's a great lesson. I mean, I know there are all sorts of problems with all kinds of athletics, but there is a great lesson to be learned from professional and and even college athletes in that they play as well as they can play. And they know that tomorrow is going to be another day. Uh-huh. Tomorrow they're going to play another game. It will be different. They may have an injury. They may be better. Um, but they don't stop because today was a perfect game. Right. Oh, that's powerful. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's, yeah, we just do it again tomorrow, and we kind of reset. I think that's. I think that is just a great paradigm about it. And and tomorrow we, you know, tomorrow we could just get schooled, and and yet you know today's today. As we exactly. wrap up, um, Diane, what what would you say is the one thing we just need to keep in mind to make sure that we're that good is good and gr- it's good enough. I, I think maybe that's the that's it. I I do think that the the idea you said it earlier, and I think this is really probably the most important thing that a lot of times when we're striving for what we think of as the best, we're looking for something from other people. We're looking for some kind of approval, mm. some kind of validation, and that's fine. I think as human beings, we all need that, but that's not about the best. It's about what we are looking for, what we need, and we will go ahead and need that again another yeah. time. Yeah. Oh, so if that's we it. can enjoy what we've got, if we can get some validation for what we've got, great. That, again, was Diane Barth uh, talking about the five ways that good enough is better than best. She is a psychotherapist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. And again, we're doing what we can to just keep uh, bringing you the information you need to make it through this crazy thing called life. You're good enough. You're doing a great job. And good enough is many times all we need to be. Uh, This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. And welcome to the Coach's Corner. Uh, in this uh, segment, we like to give you some some real-life coaching, some ideas, some tools. We just had a wonderful study presented to us by Andrew Steptoe about uh, as we're aging, our happiness levels, right? And so as part of that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, retirement. A lot of couples end up retiring, and it's you know it should be a great, a wonderful, blessed event because now all of a sudden – You've got nothing but time to just, you and your honey, to just live together and be happy. The reality is many people haven't even talked to their spouse for years. And so now we're supposed to make this work. And one person may have been the kind of stay-at-home person and the other was out in the workforce. And now you're going to come home and inject yourself into their life at home. So four conversations that we need to worry about as we are uh, thinking about retirement and so if you're an empty nester, it's an interesting statistic about your your divorce rate at empty nesting stage. Apparently, the divorce rate goes up about 16% when you and your honey are left alone with no more kids in, uh, in, the, uh, in the nest. Is that crazy? 16% increase simply because now we've got to work at it, as Andrew was saying earlier. The hard thing about a relationship is they demand work, and many of us haven't been doing the work. And so here's four conversations that if you're thinking of retiring, I would sit down and I would have each of these conversations. Don't think you're going to retire, then have the conversation. I'd first have the conversation. The first conversation is what I call the resources conversation. That is about how you are going to live on a fixed wage. With one or both of you now retiring, it only makes sense that you're not going to be able to live at the same financial level that you were before. 
In this conversation, you should discuss the financial realities of your world. You should evaluate a bunch of different things, your health care benefits, where they're going to come from, how they're going to change, your Medicare, your Medicaid, Social Security, rainy day funds, insurance costs, your cost of living. Is it time to, sh- to get a smaller home? Are we going to stay in the home? Is the home paid off? What are going to be the future changes that need to be made in the home? Are we going to uh, need to put a new roof on the home? What's going on? But start discussing this. I'd get very clear about what your actual inflow of money will look like, and I would do that before you walk away from another company. You know what? You'd, you'd think like, well, no, duh, Matt. But that doesn't always happen. Do you know the inflow of what your money's going to look like? What will your outgo look like? Are you going to have a rainy day fund to take care of that house? Is it time to get the house on the market before we need to be making some of these major changes um, and, and the major you know, breakdowns of certain uh, equipment in the home? What does our budget need to be in order to balance the inflow and the outgo? You've got to figure that out. Part of the uh, resources conversation is what are the needs and the wants that we both have? Does one of us really want to travel a lot? You know, travel may cost. Do we have a budget for that? Are we going to buy a motorhome and become members of the Good Sam Club and travel all over the country? Is that going to be an expense we need to pay attention to? What are some extra activities that are going to come up now that we have more time? Should we just continue working part-time? You know, information, very basic conversation. Think about it. Have you had the conversation? By the way, that's a great conversation to have whether you're retiring or not, by the way. Every one of these are. Um, Another second conversation I'd be focusing on, after you've had the resources conversation, have the time conversation. You know, many times one of the biggest surprises is how much time you are actually going to be spending with each other. And a lot of people, when you first fell in love, that was great. Oh, my word. It's so exciting because we have nothing but time together. But you've kind of grown your own identity. You've grown your own hobbies. You've grown your own needs. You need to go figure out how much each other is going to need. How much space will your partner need every day? You've got to figure out what your time is versus their time, versus our time. I would not retire and assume that we're just going to be together. I, I promise you, I've seen many a couple, once they're together, it, it goes south. Because now we, now what? Now you're going to look at what I'm doing and you're going to start judging how I spend my morning. You're going to watch those shows all morning. Get out of your chair. When are you going to go work on the yard? You've got nothing but time. So your schedules are going to matter. What time do we go to bed now? You know, what time do we wake up? How much time alone do you need every day? What does a tentative schedule look like? I'd break down your schedule. What are the times that you might call sacred every day, inviolable, that, you know, your partner should not be messing with? There might be certain shows you love. There might be certain lunches you love to go have that your partner is not to mess with. So the time conversation. Another conversation I love is the distribution of work conversation. This, by the way, is one that you should have with your spouse today, regardless of whether you're retiring or not. We tend to not serve equally in the home. The research shows that while we are dating, women do a little bit more work than the men do if they're, if they're cohabitating, for example, women do a little bit more work than the men do in the home. The interesting, sad research is once they marry, men do significantly less home work in the home than the woman does. Married people do not distribute the work evenly, especially if one partner works outside of the home. So you need to have a conversation. 
Are we going to how are we going to distribute the work every day? You got to have clarity on this one because a lack of clarity is going to cause nothing more than pain. So how are we going to distribute the chores? We're going to discuss who's going to do what, who's inside the home, what are we going to do inside the home? Are we both going to work outside of the home? What happens with the automobiles, the family, the grandkids? You know, who's going to make dinner every night? Who cleans up the dinner? I would very specifically go through each part of this. And if we like doing it together, you know, you know, multiple hands make lighter work, right? So here's some questions you could ask. Who's responsible for what chores around the home? Who makes the dinner? Who cleans up? How many times should we eat out versus eating in? What is one activity that uh, you both have been doing for years that you want to quit? Talk about it. Who puts together the family parties? Whose responsibility should that be? Who sends out the birthday cards? Who pays the bills? Who does the grocery shopping? All different ideas about how we're going to distribute the work. So, so far, look at that. We've talked about how we're going to have our resources. Do we have enough? What will it look like? The time conversation, the distribution of work conversation, and last and certainly not least, probably the most important conversation you can have if you're about to retire. And Andrew Steptoe brought it up. It's the legacy conversation. The legacy conversation for me, critical. Okay, because this is going to now shore up that you're going to say, great, let's say we each have 15 to 20 more years in us as we're retiring. What do we want our legacy to be as a couple, as an individual as well? What are your goals? What are your dreams? What is your new purpose? It's an exciting stage. Where do you want to invest this time? What do you want people to say at your funeral? What do you want that legacy to be? This is where we can really tie it up. This is where our passion should come out, as Andrew Steptoe was talking about. Um, This is where we start discussing what do we want our children to say about us, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. You've got the time now. Now we need to maybe strengthen some relationships. We need to start working on ourselves emotionally and spiritually and mentally, financially, physically. All of these are, are resources we can be using But what motivates you? That's a great question at this stage. Share it. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Talk about it. What do you consider your most important responsibilities and relationships at this stage? Boy, what happens if one of your kids has a real blow up with their spouse or passes away, heaven forbid, and you get to raise the grandchildren? Is that your legacy? I'd throw these crazy questions in there because if you talk to people long enough, that's what all these couples are going through. Grandparents are picking up more today than they ever have. What is the purpose of your life? If I put a microphone in front of you and just said, hey, what is the purpose of your life? What would you say? What would your spouse say? Do you think you'd be on the same page? Because if we don't know the answer to that question, what are we doing? How do I know how to manage every one of my days if I don't know what the purpose of my life is? What is the lesson, one or two, each, maybe one of each of you, that you want to teach to the rest of the world? What do your grandkids need to know that only you could teach as a grandparent? And what lessons do you still need to learn? Basic questions about your legacy. By the way, these are just conversations, right? But my belief is it's a conversation that changes the game. That's why we do this show, because we want to change the conversations. So as we work on our resources, as we work on our time conversations, our distribution of work in the, in the marriage, and our legacy, every one of these conversations makes us stronger. And please listen to what your partner is saying. 
we've got to figure out what they want because one of the rules is uh, mutual benefit has to be there. We both have to be benefiting if we want a long-term relationship, right? So if this is about you controlling the resources and not letting your partner have any access to money, you're going to have problems. Or if the time, if you keep encroaching on their time, or if you're not sharing the workload evenly, you're going to have issues. And we don't want issues because it's not going to make us happy. And according to our earlier research, we need to be happy in order to have longevity. Folks, that's the Coach's Corner. I highly challenge you, suggest that you get out there, have the conversation. And you know what? You don't need to wait for retirement. Legacy, distribution, time, resources. Four conversations, one relationship. That's the Coach's Corner. Thanks for joining us, my friends. We're going to take a break. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.